John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, this is Steve. On February 5th of this year, we lost one of the great ones. At 103 years old, Kirk Douglas might have been one of the last survivors of Hollywood's golden age. Now, there was no question in our minds that we had to do something very special to commemorate such an amazing life. But at the time, we were deep in the middle of Indiana Jones, and frankly, I didn't have the bandwidth to give Mr. Douglas the attention he deserved. Still, once we came up for air, the big question was which movie to choose. Should we go with the powerful and profound Paths of Glory, or his gunt-wrenching performance as Vincent Van Gogh in Lust for Life? Maybe it should be Lonely Are the Brave, or one of my personal favorites, the often-overlooked Seven Days in May. Of course, in the end, there really wasn't a choice. We had to go with the film that is not only a powerful epic, but a movie where the battles behind the scenes are almost as crazy as the ones up there in that beautiful technorama. I mean... This is the movie that actually broke the blacklist. It's a film that brings together powerful and uniquely difficult personalities like Lawton, Ustinov, Olivier, blacklisted screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, and of course, Stanley Kubrick, who would prefer to forget he ever directed this picture. The movie, of course, is Spartacus. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend escaping to our website, cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream Spartacus along with every other film we've ever reviewed. And if you're interested in seeing what I actually look like, John and I just recorded our very first video live stream on our YouTube channel to discuss the coronavirus and the current state of the world. So that's a live stream right now on YouTube and Spartacus in honor of the great Kirk Douglas this Friday on the Cinephiles. All men lose when they die. All men die, but a slave and a free man lose different things. They both lose life. Free man dies, he loses the pleasure of life. Slave loses its pain. Death is the only freedom a slave knows. That's why he's not afraid of it. I will win. Hello and welcome. 
welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, writer, producer, and host over at the Outlaw Nation, and of course, co-host of the Top Ten Show and the Geek Buddies over there on my Outlaw Nation uh, YouTube channel. And as I look out through the window here in Steve's office, I'm reminded of the mountains we're going to be talking about <laughs> and traversing as we talk about the film we're talking about today. Because today we are honoring the great Iser Danielovich, also known as Kirk Douglas, yeah. who passed away about a month ago at the age of 103 years old. That's how you do it. Right? You just fight through everything and then outlive them all and then go when you feel like it. I mean, I, I was thinking about it, it's like when he was born, World War I was happening. Yeah. Woodrow Wilson was president. The big movie stars were Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, you know. Right. D.W. Griffith was the big director. Silent movies yes. were all the rage when yeah. he was born, yes. I mean, that's just amazing to me. And it's, it's funny, normally when we're going to do one of these tributes, we try to do it as soon after the person passes away as possible, and we were right in the middle of Indiana Jones, yeah. and I, I kind of said, I can't, I need time, because... Yeah. This is a this is one of the great legendary figures. I mean, he's a, Kirk Douglas is a huge person, has a huge life, huge influence on film. Plus, the movie that we're doing today, which is Spartacus, is a huge movie. Yeah. And so there's a lot of history involved in Spartacus, and it's a really important movie because it's the film that officially broke the blacklist. Yes. So we got so it was just a lot of stuff, and so I personally needed some time to ramp up to it right. in order to what I feel is the the man and the movie justice. Yeah, absolutely. When you when you text me and you're like, I think we should do Spartacus, and I was like, Yes, absolutely, done and done for Kirk Douglas. But then we we were right, we were in the middle of India. And we're like, Well, we can't just divert because normally we will. Normally we'll yeah. adjust our schedule. But you're right, Steve. And so when you said you needed time, and I was like, This is perfect because sometimes it's good to wait a little bit to give it a little more time to marinate it, and then we can properly assess the loss of Kirk Douglas and then look back on his life. And stuff. Sometimes articles come out, things come out that you read and hear about it somebody else that you didn't know about before that could uh, decorate your uh, uh, tribute to him. So yeah. Well, and you know, the Cinephiles has never been a show about hot takes. Yeah. You know, right. this is a show. Well, about- <laughs> I don't know. Then that recent Rays of Lost Ark seems like it was, but yeah, <laughs> sure. But it, but it also is a show where we have some time to think about. Yes. What it is we're talking about. Ruminate, yeah. Um, and uh, I wanted to give a little uh, bio of Kirk Douglas. As I said, he was born Izer Danielovich to uh, Russian Jewish immigrant parents. He grew up speaking Yiddish in the home. Right. And uh, they called him Izzy. Um, and his father was a ragman who sold rags and junk from horsebacks for nickels and dimes, you know. And his father was an alcoholic. He was physically and emotionally abusive. And every bit of money that came in sounds like it went out in the bottle. Right. You know, that's right. that's that's where it went for. And not surprising, growing up in crippling poverty like this, uh, Easter Dan Yelovich, little Izzy, grew up pretty angry. Yeah. This is a pretty intense guy. The chin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's funny. We'll talk about it when we get there, but I think he's got like a head out of carved out of granite. Let me ask you something. And I'll ask you that, like, as because obviously, you know, and I want to, I want to walk a very tender minefield here and ask you about this. I'm he's, not going to be offended. Okay, cool. yeah. He's a masculine Jew. Yeah, right. That's that. Not usually what we see from Jewish movie stars or Jewish actors or whatever. He is an anomaly in so many ways, and the way he's built uh, his career, the way he's built as a force of energy, people rarely give him the credit of being a Jewish 
actor, right? They rarely mention it when they're doing tributes for him. And I find that to be fascinating. Well, I think, I think uh, you know, in all things, yeah. we can say that sometimes there is reasons that uh, certain stereotypes exist. Right, 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 right. But stereotypes do not encompass an entire group of people and never no, do. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like, it's like, you know, like, I mean, we, we could think of whatever, I, I'm not going to say one, but we can imagine a positive stereotype about a certain group. Right. And then having someone within that group, you know, maybe their stereotype is for good at math or their right, stereotype right, right, is right. good at music or good at athletics. And then you have someone within that group who does, is good at the opposite thing. Right. You know, well, of course there are because these populations are diverse. But certain you know? populations are, are like, for example, there are not a lot of Jewish athletes compared to like black athletes and compared right. to like, so those kinds of things, it's always, it's, it's kind of relative within the culture. And so I find, that's what I find so interesting about Kirk Douglas. You, you, He's an anomaly in his own you, way. You're really pushing me to extend our podcast longer by giving you one of my favorite theories. Please. Okay, so this is a digression. This is not, I wasn't gonna bring this right, up. Right, but, right. So I have a theory as to why the Jewish people were so successful, disproportionately successful, mm. in finance, science, the arts, the law, uh, literature, um, education, you know, professors, sure. um, in, at the turn of the 20th century. Comedy. Comedy. Yes. All right, are you ready for my theory? Please. This I, is Steve's I, theory. And when do we bait it back? Okay, so at the time before the diaspora, which is when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jewish people spread all over the world, mm -hmm. the center of Jewish religion, it's, it's funny that we, it was the Ark of the Covenant. There we go. It was the temple, it was the temple in Jerusalem, and that was the center of, of their religion. Mm -hmm. all, all things focused on that spot. Right. And then when they were spread all over the world, what they did was they brought the Torah with them. And so instead of this one temple, this one altar, mm -hmm. the, the center of Jewish religion became these books. And so from that time, 2,000 years ago, literacy was extremely important to the Jewish people. What is the, the, the movement that changes a person from a boy to a man? Mm -hmm. It's the bar mitzvah where the, where the young man reads from the Torah for the first time, which meant that at a time where uh, literacy rates in, the, in Europe were maybe 5%, Jewish literacy rates were 90%. Wow. Okay, and then, so, so that's one factor. Oh. Then you take another factor, which is that in much of Europe, Jews were not allowed to own land. Right. They were forbidden from owning land. And so if you think about uh, the rest of Europe, how did you get status? Well, the places you got status were fighting a war mm -hmm. and work in the land. Right. The biggest, strongest guy who could plow the most fields and handle the most livestock, that was the high-status person in the village. Yeah. So the person, the high-status woman, would want to marry that person. And she needed to be strong and hardy because that's the kind of world it was. Yeah. And so in terms of evolution, you have one population that's selecting for physical prowess in war and working the land. Jews weren't allowed to work the land. Right. And they were highly literate. Who was the top, the most, the highest status person in the Jewish community? Mm -hmm. It was the rabbi. Right. The most learned, the most read person there. And rabbis married. Yeah. So, and what jobs did Jews have since they couldn't work the land? Well, they became lawyers and doctors and philosophers and thinkers and scientists. Right. And that's where status came from. They were the people that handled the money. You know, they were the Shylock, the right. person that handled things of business. So this goes on for 2,000 years. Then you get to the turn of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And at the turn of the 20th century is when we shift from an agrarian culture to a, an urban factory-oriented or culture. Right. And what do we need when that happens? We need 
lawyers. Oh, oh right. You, what, gotcha. All of a sudden, the values of people who can read, people uh, who have yeah, valued yeah. science and knowledge and learning and all of the arts, all of those things become much more valuable. Yeah. So who are the people that can jump into those positions of business positions, science positions, running the movie studios, right, right. being the lawyers, being the professors? Well... The Jews have been practicing this for two thousand years. Yeah. So, so that, so, and I think part of why we get this stereotype of the Jewish people not being the big physical people, yeah. well, they weren't allowed to be. Right. You know, if right. they had been allowed to own land and they had been competing over who can farm the best thing, right. there would have been more physical people. Um, you know, so that is okay. So that is Steve's that's a great theory. theory. I love it, I, and it's good. And once again, I do want to clarify: I'm not talking about stereotypes, right? But I just mean he's an anomaly in his. Well, look, you are right? you, you are talking about stereotypes because when I think about like you know jewish actors it's usually woody allen that comes up or mel brooks you know the comedy type of aspect of it all but it's also rarely but it's also Man. paul newman right right good point yes you know? yes i yes. mean there's a whole bunch of jewish actors yeah. that are uh pretty masculine mm. now i'm you know we, we could play the adam sandler hanukkah song you know captain <laughs> kirk Captain Kirk but and are Mr. They, Spock. Are they born Jewish or converted Jewish? No, like, how Jewish. does that work? Okay. Yeah. Right. Captain right. Kirk and Mr. Spock are both Jewish. Kirk is Jewish, certainly. Nimoy's Jewish. Uh, Nimoy is, yes. Yes. I do yeah. know that. Yeah. Yeah. So they, I wouldn't you know, say N- Nimoy's necessarily. He's more on the uh, intellectual scientist side. train. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But I will give you a shatter. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Even though he's blocked me. Um, <laughs> Twitter. It's lost. Uh, so anyway, back to Kirk in his life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that was a, that was a digression. <laughs> maybe this is going to be a really. But long as an episode. honorary Jew, I'm learning more and more. So I'm. A, well, it's a, we, we are a, we are a fascinating people. So um, Kirk Douglas, he figured out he wanted to be an actor in kindergarten. Wow. When he got up and he read the Red Red Robin of Spring, and he got applause. And I think you, I know you had this experience. Yes. I had this experience about six years old, the first time I was on stage, and I was like, oh, this, this, feels, this feels good. Yep. Um, he worked all sorts of jobs from, the, from five years old on just to make money for food. Mm-hmm. He was intense. He was angry. He was driven. Uh, he did plays in high school, got to college time, couldn't afford college, and he basically stormed the dean at St. Lawrence University, showed him all his high school honors, and... Uh, pushed him to get admitted. And he's like worked all sorts of part-time jobs in order to make his way through college. Uh, he paid back every single penny that was spent on him. He worked as a gardener. Probably. He worked as a janitor. Uh, he's on the wrestling team, always a physical guy. In the summers, he wrestled at carnivals. Hmm. Like, you know, like, can you, you know, yeah. come right up, see if you can beat him. And Kirk Douglas would wrestle people for money. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he joined, enlisted in the Navy in 1941. He was a communications officer on an anti-submarine ship where he was injured uh, because of an accidental release of a depth charge. Yeah, and had a medical discharge at that time. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he he worked in radio. He did theater, which is really what his true love was, to do theater. Did commercials. He did soap operas. Um, and one of his buddies is Lauren Bacall. Yeah. Uh, and this was, I believe, at the American Academy of Dramatic Art. Mm-hmm. And she went, this guy is special. And when she went to Hollywood, he was like, I want to stay and do Broadway. Right. And she said, no, you got to come to ho- Hollywood with me. Um, and she's the one who got him into film. And he's in a bunch of bit parts until 1949 when he stars in Champion. Yeah. Have you seen it? The boxing film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He is. The, it, it, to me, his performance is like a performance out of the 70s. Yeah. It is intense and gritty and tough. Yeah. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a great film. 
but it's certainly the announcement of a star, and he got his first nomination for Best Actor. Yeah. Um, and to do that part, he turned down something where he would have been paid three times as much because he wanted to play something with the greater risk. Yeah. And that's Kirk Douglas. He is an aggressive... He doesn't want to take the easy route for anything. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, when he first started working in Hollywood, they really did try to cover up that chin cleft. <laughs> they put putty in it for the first publicity pictures he ever yeah. took, and finally he's like, "No, I got to be me. You, either, yeah. you take it with me or without me." You know, the chin is the yeah. chin. Um, he does a movie called Young Man with a Horn, and something really bizarre happens, which is there is an actress named Jean Spangler who's on the movie. And she disappears. This is one of the great mysteries in Hollywood. Nobody knows what happened to her. A couple of years go by. They find her purse. And in her purse is the following note. It says, Kirk, can't wait any longer. Going to see Dr. Scott. uh, Gene Spangler's friends said that she was three months pregnant and was going to get an abortion. Oh, my God. Kirk says, first he said, I didn't, I never knew her. Right. Then he says, oh, I did know her. We kind of flirted a little bit, but I never went out with her. I never had a relationship right, right, with her. Right. That's not me. Right. And we don't know. Right. But that is a that is a weird mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he does Ace in the Hole in 51, which I've not seen. Um, he does Bad and the Beautiful in 52, which is a really good movie yeah. about Hollywood. Yeah. That gets him his second uh, Academy Award nomination. Um, he does 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Which is great. Is is that it's that Disney yeah. classic golden age Disney kind of movie. I don't I don't love it as much maybe as a lot of people do. Yeah. Oh, uh, a lot of it, people love it. It's a nostalgia thing for me. Yeah. I, I can totally see the holes in it, whatever, but I enjoy revisiting yeah. it when I can. And then in fifty six he does Lust for Life and yeah. plays Vincent Van Gogh. This is a good movie. Still oh, yeah. holds up. Saw it last totally. year at TCM for the first time. So good. And again, it's that intensity. Yeah. Like that just raw sort of animal. Yeah. There's no way Van Gogh was like that. But still, it works yeah. for the film, you know? Yeah. It, no, it's it's powerful. And it's that tragic. is his third Academy Award nomination. Three Academy Award nominations. He never won. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then he forms uh, Brian Up Productions, which is named for his mom in 55. Yeah. And he sees a little movie called The Killing, which has come up over and over again. This is early Stanley Kubrick, yeah. and he says, I want to meet that guy. He meets Kubrick, asks, What's he, what are you working on? And Kubrick says, I'm working on this movie about World War One called Paths of Glory, yeah. and Bryna Productions produces it. Um, we talked about it before. We haven't done it on this show yet. I love that movie. Yeah, we will. We yeah. should totally do it. I think I think in talking about Kirk Douglas, that, that was the other movie that yes. we talked about doing. Yeah. Uh, unless it was going to be Tough Guys with Burt Lancaster. But... <laughs> Which we should, we wouldn't be a bad thing to do. <laughs> I love that movie. So do I. Yeah. It's a guilty pleasure maybe we'll of the cinephiles. So maybe one I haven't seen it in 20 years. Really? Yeah, I haven't oh, seen it forever. It was randomly on one of the pay channels uh, a few a few weeks ago, and I watched about an hour of it. I forget Eli Wallach is in it. I forget Dana Carvey is yep. in it. Uh, it's so good. Dana Carvey's like the parole officer Yeah, he's or a parole like officer, that. yeah. Um, um, uh, he, he does... Uh, after that, he does Spartacus, which obviously we're going to talk about a lot today. Yeah. He does uh, Lonely Are the Brave in 62, which is a messed up, weird movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then in 63, he buys the rights to a little known play called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. And he plays that on Broadway, doesn't get great reviews, and he wants to make a movie of it. He owns the rights, and he spends a decade trying to get it made, can't get it made. Right. Finally, his son, Michael, says, hey, dad, let me take that property, see what I can do. And Michael Douglas does get it made and doesn't cast his dad. Nope. That is one of the weirdest 
And doesn't cast himself. And doesn't don't cast forget, himself. Michael Douglas was an actor at sure. the time as well. And, and, and you can't argue with success. No. I mean, like, how could you picture anyone other than Jack Nicholson playing that part? Right, right. Um, he has this longtime partnership with Burt Lancaster. Uh, he starts with I Walk Alone, Gunfight at the OK Corral, which is one of many. I love that film. Yeah. I own that film and love that film. <laughs> it's historically completely Nothing, inaccurate. Totally inaccurate. But the chemistry of uh, Lancaster and Douglas is the reason right. to watch it. Um, uh, the Devil's Disciple they're both in. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the List of Adrian Messenger, I think it's called. I don't know that movie at all. I don't know all. either. Yeah. Seven Days in May. I absolutely love this movie. Yeah. You haven't seen it. I have right? not. No. Okay. I would love to do it at some point. Yep. Uh, it's it's a really, really good movie directed by John Frankenheimer, written by Rod Serling. Yeah. That is a cool film. Victory and Entebbe, and as we already mentioned, Tough Guys. Tough Guys. Um, I remember he does The Man from Snowy River yes. in 86. Yeah. I've tried to watch that recently because it's on oh, yeah. Stars or one of those channels right now on consistent rotation. And it just, uh, it doesn't do it for me, man. It doesn't do it for me. I remember liking it in the 80s. I haven't yeah. seen it in forever. Because he has that limp and whatever, mm. and it's just, it's just kind of a weird little movie. So It's Australian, yeah, I think. Australian. Yeah, Australian, yeah. 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 Um, in 88, he does a version of Inherit the Wind. Yes. Um, and, then, and then in 91, and I had totally forgotten about this, that he was in a huge helicopter crash. Yes. Speaking of which, a helicopter's literally flying over right at this moment. Timing is perfect. Um, and two people died in it. It was like a mid-air collision with an airplane, and he survived. And that is when, uh, you know, we were talking about Judaism before. That is when he found his religion again and wow. became Jewish again after wow. surviving that helicopter crash. I didn't crash. know he'd walked away from it. Yeah, he had. Oh, yeah. Oh. He had really walked away from I think he had walked away from everything Isser Danielovich. Right. I think he was angry. He wanted, he, you know, and he... He was an intense, driven, angry guy yeah. who did some stuff that maybe he's. I know that he's not wasn't proud about right. near near the end of his life, and some of the things we're going to talk about in Spartacus, he wasn't proud of. Mm. Um, uh, he's married to the same woman for sixty five years. Mm -hmm. uh, he had a stroke in ninety six. Yeah. Uh, he was a huge philanthropy, mm -hmm. donated over forty million dollars in his lifetime, and then basically his entire estate, which is another sixty million dollars, mm -hmm. was donated upon his death. Yeah. Um he won he wrote ten novels, multiple memoirs. The most famous is The Ragman's Son, right. which I read years ago and I was gonna reread for this, but I couldn't find it an audiobook. And if I, <laughs> I if I have to use my eyes, then I'm just not gonna happen. Um he made more than ninety films. Yeah. This is something he said. He described himself as a son of a bitch, adding, I'm probably the most disliked actor in Hollywood, and I feel pretty good about it, because that's me. I was born aggressive, and I guess I'll die aggressive. He said, there was an awful lot of rage churning around inside me, rage that I was afraid to reveal, because there was so much more of it. Yeah. Here's what Burt Lancaster once said about him. He said, Kirk would be the first to tell you that he is a very difficult man, and I would be the second. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good friend. <laughs> exactly. You know, I saw him uh, at a TCM festival. Mm. He introduced Spartacus. So it was a Q&A for like 45 minutes, I think with Robert Osborne wow. a few years ago. And it's one of the greatest memories of my life because he was still with it. You know, he's still sharp. He was still funny. Yes, he was 90s and, he, and he's sitting in the chair and whatever. Right. But he was still rolling with some of the quips and some of the fun. Was he slow in delivering the joke? Yes. 
but the joke landed. And so it was just great to watch him talk about it and remember sharp as attack about Dalton Trumbo, about everything went on with this film and the blacklist and everything still spoke about it with reverence, you know? And so I, I was just blown away by the fact that he could maintain his story. And it could be that aggressiveness that right. kept him, you know, constantly living and constantly trying to stay as sharp as possible up until the end. So what I did listen to is he wrote a whole book about the making of Spartacus. Yes. And he wrote it, I think it is late nineties. Oh wow. And it is a sharp, thoughtful book. Go. And what's cool about the audible one it's read by Michael. It's read by his son. Oh, that's great. So there's something about hearing Michael Douglas's voice talk as Kirk Douglas, it, that really it makes it kind of special. Right. And, and speaking of this, the, you know, one of the things we got to talk about is we got to also talk about the blacklist. So I know it's, it's now we've talked a long time before actually getting into the film, and I mm. apologize for it, but the blacklist is really important. It's really central to this movie. It's something that we talked about when we talked about On the Waterfront, because On the Waterfront, yeah. Elliot Kazan is someone who did name names, right. and some people think of On the Waterfront waterfront is his sort of explanation yeah. of why he did what he did and now we got to talk about the other side it began in 47 and um there was you know during the house un-american activities committee mm -hmm. and also under mccarthy and the red scare and of course this is right after world war ii and the rise of the soviet union and being a communist was not a popular thing yeah. in this country and, and it's Senator Joseph McCarthy, for those of you who may not know. Yes, yeah, Senator yeah. Joseph McCarthy. Yeah. And um, there was a group called the Hollywood Ten, yeah. which included Dalton Trumbo, who goes on to be the writer of this film. He's the most successful writer in Hollywood at the time, mm -hmm. and probably among the most prolific. And the Hollywood Ten comes out and makes a statement that basically says uh, that film and freedom of the speech are protected and that they can be loyal Americans and they can have their own beliefs right. and that is what America is all about. Right. It does not go well for them. They are all sentenced to jail. Uh, at this time, Hollywood is so scared of this Red Scare yeah. that they are having people sign loyalty oaths, they are having people renounce the Communist Party and anyone that had any inkling that they might have been part of the Communist Party are blacklisted, which means that they cannot work in Hollywood, right. at least not openly. So. I always find this to be fascinating. But then you're seeing it happen all the time now. Uh, but at the time, you're like, okay, these people are exercising their freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of thought, right? To go into these meetings and explore the possibility of communism for themselves. Like, what does this mean? What is this all about? It's That's all it was, right? Some of them were probably communists or wanted to become communists or whatever, but our country is about freedom. So if you want to you want to subscribe to a certain philosophy, you can feel free to do so. But Hollywood, which is, you know, always being characterized as this liberal place, here they are rolling in and going, we're afraid we're going to lose money. We're afraid of this kind of jazz. If people are going to turn on us, we're going to have to have you sign loyalty oaths. We're going to have to put you essentially in indentured servitude for your beliefs uh, and everything like that. And I always find it to be such a fascinating reaction from Hollywood. And eventually it takes someone like Kirk Douglas with that chin to shatter that yeah. wall between uh, the blacklist and reality. Yeah. Well, and, and and honestly, it's still going on today. Yes, it is. And the thing, too, everyone who listens to this show, they know my politics are on the left side. Or our politics, really, yeah. But uh, I think the left, in a lot of ways, is more to blame for this than the right at yeah. this moment. This is like, what I you make thing. You make uh, uh, some off-color joke on Twitter 10 years ago, and suddenly, you can't work. 
Right. You know, like the, and it's the same thing is that, and now it's much more rather than driven by the elites or driven by mm. Congress or Senator McCarthy or someone like that. It's driven by Twitter, yeah. constantly churning outrage machine. And the thing that I would just say about this that I, I, I think people should consider is that there is no need to protect popular speech. Yes. If, if I wanted to get up and say, ice cream is delicious. I don't need a constitutional amendment to protect me from saying that mm -hmm. because everyone would be like, yeah, ice cream's pretty good. And if there was someone who doesn't like ice cream, they're not going to- Lactose intolerant, I hate it. Yeah, that's fine. It's only unpopular speech that needs protection. Right. Things that offend people, things that people find difficult, challenging. You know, at the time in the early 60s in the free speech movement, it was people like Lenny Bruce talking about the Catholic Church, right. people talking about race, people talking about sex, people talking about things that made people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Well, today, if you talk about race, it's the left that's uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, and so there are a lot of things that a lot of people say that I really don't like that offend me that I find seriously problematic. And those people's speech should be protected because that is what freedom of the speech is about. Right. In my opinion, this is, this is me, a Berkeley guy where the free speech movement started. It's not speech. I like that needs to be protected. Censorship is always driven by the fear that the words coming out of the people's mouths will affect more of the masses than you do, or your opinion does. And that's what always drives censorship. It's a, it's this, uh, unrealistic fear uh, and so you see it, and, and nowadays even more so. And the battle between right and left happens in Hollywood all the time. We just had yesterday, as we're recording this on Variety, Antonio Sabato Jr. coming out and doing this massive article on him and because he's got a great PR team, claiming that his career ended because in Hollywood because he spoke up at the Trump at the sorry at the Republican National Convention for Trump. He said he was the first actor to come out for Trump, and it was and his 30 year acting career ended. And of course, everybody chimed in and was like, "You're being ridiculous. You were barely an actor." And they're right. looking his resume so he's making more of a meal out of this but he's taking advantage of this narrative that conservatives push all the time that hollywood is like a, the liberal elite the hollywood elite and they're stepping on conservatives all the time never mind that bruce willis and schwarzenegger and stallone and so many people are super successful who are conservatives at patricia heaton on a lower scale with the tv they're successful doing what they do so but there's always this narrative of like oh they're going to step on conservatives the only thing Hollywood gives a shit about is money. And if you can make money, then they'll give you a, a license to do whatever film you want to do, pretty much. So it's not about politics. It's about money, always. Well, but, but the power of Twitter and things like that. Yeah, the cancel culture stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a wrong thing. Right. You no. know, and, and this, is, this is the big thing that I always think is like, well, in my opinion, I think certain points of view are wrong. Right. And because I think they're wrong, I think I can beat them in an argument in a fair fight. Mm -hmm. I don't need an unfair fight. I don't need you to go shut them down. Right, right, right. Like, if you shut them down, you actually sometimes give them more power. You martyr them. Yeah. Right. It's like, I want you to know, come out and say your thing, and I will argue with you right. publicly. Right. I also go... Like everyone probably listening right now has somebody, some relative, some friend, some guy they knew from high school right. who they look at things they post on Facebook or something and just go, oh, my God, right. I cannot believe this person thinks this or likes that person or believes that. I'm not talking about left or right, right. both of whatever side yeah. you have someone who you think is just ridiculous. Yeah. Do you believe that person should have their lives ruined, their job taken away, not be able to work, right. be vilified publicly everywhere because they have ridiculous beliefs? Right. There's a lot. All, that means a lot of us have relatives and friends and you know people that we know that are going to have their lives ruined. Yeah. And that's the thing is that was there reason to fear the Communist Party in the late 40s and early 50s in the U.S.? 
you know, maybe because the Soviet Union was involved in the American Communist Party, mm -hmm. and this this was the beginnings of the Cold War. Right. Does that mean that someone could have dallied with communism? Which, by the way, if you were for civil rights and women's rights mm -hmm. and 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 cared about unions and workers, there was a lot of parity with the Communist Party at the time. Sure, but it's the hypocrisy of the people in power who who are scared of this, while behind the back of the American people, and you discover this as you watch Hunters on Amazon Prime, they were bringing in Nazi scientists who had participated in these concentrations 100%. to be part of the space That's program. A great, great point. Right? And so you're going, well, why are you... You're mad at you. You're worried about the communists, but here you are behind our backs, bringing in these Nazi scientists to be part of your space program to get us to land on the moon, starting in the mid '40s into the into the '70s and '80s. So, give me a break. What's the real truth here? It's all about convenience. That's all it was. Hundred percent. Well, the, I, 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 and again, I don't, I'll, I'll, we'll get yeah. off of this in a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's like if you are the American government who's pursuing communists in the U.S. who are just you know a writer who cares about civil rights or something. Right. Well, at the same time, you're supporting some horrible dictator like Batista or or, or the Shah of Iran or whoever yeah. you are, and you have you know people being tortured in different places around the world. The, there's a lot of hypocrisy there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so uh, needless to say, uh, by the way, Dalton Trumbo, uh, the the first most famous thing he wrote is a book called Johnny Got His Gun, which, is, right. which I've read. It is might be among the most depressing and painful books of all time. Yeah, I think there's a movie about there, it. There is. I've never super seen Super depressing. Yeah. It's basically about a guy injured in World War One yeah. who is can't move, speak, see, hear, right. you know, and and all just the thoughts in his brain. Yeah. And and it's a powerful anti-war novel. Not a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Um um and he like I said becomes the biggest uh screenwriter in Hollywood and then he is jailed for 11 months and blacklisted and he stuck to his guns. Mm. Unlike Eddie Dimitrick, another member of the Hollywood 10 who did end up turning uh naming names, he stuck to his guns and his beliefs and he said, "Show me the man who informs on friends, who have harmed no one and who thereafter earns money he could not have earned before, and I will show you not a decent citizen, not a patriot, but a miserable scoundrel who will, if new pressure arises and the price is right, will betray not just his friends but his country itself." Yeah. Yeah, strong words from Dalton Trumbo. Still resonate today. Yep. Kirk Douglas also had a whole bunch of buddies who were hurt by the blacklist, mm -hmm. including Carl Foreman, who wrote High Noon and Bridge on the River Kwai and had to flee the country. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, had another buddy, uh, Philip Loeb, who was blacklisted, went into a depression, and committed suicide. Mm. So this was something that was very strong for Kirk Douglas. Um, Trumbo, when he got out of jail, moved to Mexico and... Uh, and continued writing under uh, pseudonyms with fronts. So a front is someone that he basically is paying to go pretend to be the writer, right. make the deal in Hollywood's Trumbo actually would write the script and that guy would get a fee. Yeah. Uh, and this happened a lot. Uh, he wrote, by the way, Trumbo wrote in his bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> he put a tray across the bathtub. Oh, right. That's in the movie. It's in the movie yes. with, uh, what's his name? Brian Cranston. With Brian Cranston. Yes. He's got his cigarette in a cigarette holder and a typewriter that's just writing naked all day. Hey, man. <laughs> you can yeah, whatever make works. It um, he uh, writes a movie that is fronted by a guy named Ian Hunter. That movie is called Roman Holiday, mm. and it wins the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay in 1953. And Ian Hunter walks up and accepts the Oscar for the screenplay. Right. While Dalton Trumbo sits in his bathtub in Mexico. <laughs> he writes another movie called The Brave One, and it's just written under a pseudonym, Robert Rich. And it wins the Oscar for Best Screenplay in 56. No one is there to collect it because there is no Robert Rich. 
Right. Trumbo sitting in his bathtub in Mexico. And I wonder if people knew Robert Rich was Trumbo and voted for it as a protest vote against the blacklist. Probably a lot yeah. of people knew. Yeah. And what's interesting is that really the blacklist dies in 54. Yes. And so does McCarthy. And that most of America, I mean, like Ike is very much against it. General Marshall is against it. They shut it down. And most of America goes, that was that was wrong. That was yeah. a bad thing. Yeah. But the blacklist lifted in Hollywood, uh, stayed in Hollywood for until 1960. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, as I, and now, where Trumbo used to get paid a half a million dollars or something for a script, he's getting paid $5,000 for a script. Wow. And he's just cranking them out. Uh, in 1956, Kirk Douglas was forced to sign a loyalty oath to do Lust for Life. There's another blacklisted writer we have to talk about, and that is Howard Fast. Howard Fast was blacklisted, went to prison, and while in prison, he started thinking about slavery, and he started thinking about fighting to get back against the elites, and he started thinking about Spartacus. Yeah. And in prison, he began writing a book on Spartacus. Mm. He gets out. He's under constant surveillance by the FBI. He tries to sell, sell his book. None of the publishers will buy it because he is a blacklisted writer. Right. So he self-publishes the book. This is in the late 50s, which is an amazing thing, and it becomes a big, big hit. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that Kirk Douglas was up for the role of Ben-Hur. Yes, he was. <laughs> and he was, because he had worked with William Wyler on uh, Lust for Life. Is that what it was, or was it Lonely or the Brave? I don't know. It's not, Lonely or the Brave is later. Okay. So I don't know what it was. But he'd worked on with, 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 with William Wyler on another movie, and then he was really hurt by the fact that Wyler didn't choose him to be the lead in uh, Ben-Hur. And so he was hunting for another epic. Yep. Uh, as a way to cut, because once again, you've got an aggressive, angry Kurt Douglas. Like, you're not going to cast me. I'm going to show you. I'm right. going to do my own epic. And certainly enough, he makes it happen. Another thing, and I don't know if it's in your notes, is Yul Brenner was working on a rival uh, a Spartacus movie as well. There is another universe where Yul Brenner does the Spartacus movie, yeah. and wouldn't that have been interesting to hear him to hear him do everything here? Well, what happens is is there's essentially a race because the yeah. studio. I think it's Warner Brothers with Yul Brenner. It's Universal with uh, Kirk Douglas yeah. and Spartacus, and they're both going to do a Spartacus movie, and there can't be two. So whichever movie gets a script and a cast and a budget and is greenlit and is ready to go, right. kills the other movie. The other movie gets canceled. This is back in Hollywood when you could kill the other movie yeah. if you got there first. Nowadays, you can't. It's Tombstone and White Earth. Right, it's right. Deep Impact and Armageddon. So yeah. So so they're off to the races, and he Kirk buys the book, uh, writes the book for a hundred bucks mm. from Howard Fast. Oh my god! On the condition that Fast writes the screenplay. Oh. So he starts writing the screenplay. They get the screenplay from Fast. It is apparently terrible. Wow. So they go. We got to get someone else, and they go. And and Kirk knew uh, Trumbo, and so they go to Trumbo, and Trumbo's going to write it under a pseudonym. And they actually, one of the producers, a guy named Edward Lewis, becomes the front. Essentially, he's the guy walking around saying, "I wrote this screenplay," yeah. which of course he didn't. Kirk Douglas's agent is a guy who's we've mentioned a few times on the Cinephiles, Lou Wasserman. Yeah, Lou Wasserman, one of the most famous, probably the ultimate Hollywood power player, who goes from being a small-time agent to the biggest agent in Hollywood, and eventually takes over universal there's a joke that he told sinatra to keep it down he was eating <laughs> yeah he was that big that's big yeah and so lou is his agent and, and kirk goes to him and says i you know i can't get anyone to buy this uh spartacus thing and he goes why don't you take it to universal and kirk goes oh well they're kind of a smaller studio i don't know if i want to take it to universal he's like go ahead take it to universal not knowing that lou wasserman was in the process of taking over universal <laughs> and so that is where they sold uh the movie 
one other thing that happens in this moment is that Kirk Douglas decides to not take a small plane with a couple other Hollywood types, and that is the small plane in which uh, Mike Todd, Liz Taylor's husband, dies. Right. Because the plane crash. So he yeah. narrowly avoids a plane crash. He, at first, wants Olivier not only to play Crassus, but to direct the movie. Wow. Yeah. Well, because he had done Hamlet. He, he'd done Hamlet right. Henry Five. Right, Henry Five. Yeah. And so he goes to Olivier, and Olivier says, reads this. Now we do have a first script from Trumbo, because Trumbo writes fast. Yeah. And he goes to Olivier, and Olivier goes, oh, this is great. I'd love to play Spartacus. <laughs> That's Olivier. Yeah. That sounds about right. Well, and this is the thing we're going to see. The number of prima donnas <laughs> of big personalities on this movie is a uh, lot. As if he could play a slave being... Oh, yeah. come on. And by the way, the book, the original <laughs> book, the Howard Fast book, has a flashback structure. And the whole thing is told from Crassus's point of view. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so when the, the early scripts, oh, both from Fast and from Trumbo, yeah. had a flashback structure with lots and lots of voiceover from Crassus, which is how they got Olivier to take the part. Wow. Yeah. Um, but of course, Crassus telling the story. Interesting. I know. I can't really imagine it. I can't imagine it. Gracchus, I could believe, yeah. but not Crassus. Now, the studio is really nervous about this movie, so mm -hmm. they want to get someone who they know and can trust. And so they bring say, you got to work with Anthony Mann. And Kirk didn't love the idea. Right. He's a very solid workmanlike director, mm -hmm. uh, but that was the way to get the money from Universal. And so they bring in Anthony Mann. He had directed El Cid. Yes. Which I've seen a long time ago. It, that film was terrible to watch uh, because Sophia Loren and Charlton Heston hated each other during That's the making of the film. And there is no scene where they're looking at each other face to face. She purposely would angle herself to look at some other part of his body as a protest. Wow. Yeah. 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 So he's going to be the director. Mm -hmm. And now we've won the race. We got a script from Trumbo. We've got Olivier's going to be in it. We've got Charles Lawton and Peter Ustinov going to be in it. Yeah. We've got who are big bag actors, also prima donnas. <laughs> no surprise. <laughs> um, and we have beaten uh, Yul Brynner. That movie gets canceled. Yeah. And we are heading into production. And the one other part we need to fill is Verenia, which is the, uh, the love interest. Yeah. And Gene Simmons, who is a buddy of Kirk Douglas, says, I want this part. And she begs him and she pesters him. And he says no. Yeah. Because he wanted all the Romans to be British and all the slaves and gladiators to be Americans. Mm. Because he wanted to make that separation. Yeah. And Gene Simmons is British. And so he said, you can't do it. Right. And so they hire a uh, a German actress to play the part of Rinia. How is a German going to sound American? But okay. This is the real problem. Yeah. Well, what he, what his. Are you sure, Kirk? You sure you didn't what he said is that. Mess I mean, around with her, maybe? The Romans were fighting Germanic tribes, and maybe True. they had grabbed her, and that's how she became a slave. That's a fair point. Would you like to get into this Anthony Mann-directed film called Spartacus? <laughs> yes, let's do this. This Anthony Mann-directed film. Well, we start with an overture. Because <laughs> all good epics need an overture. This is. Uh, from composer Alex North, great score. Mm -hmm. And then we go into the titles. Yeah. And I didn't remember it, but as soon as the first image came up, I went, that's Saul Bass. Yep. Yeah. It's Saul Bass, his title sequence, yeah. Yeah, who we last saw in the titles for Vertigo. Yes. Yeah, and Saul Bass is this fascinating designer, and this is this is the beginning of title sequences. Yeah. Vertigo is one of the first ones ever, where because it used to be just you got the title and maybe a couple of names, and then you got it in the movie. Exactly. Like a long title sequence was not a normal thing. Now it's totally normal. Mm -hmm. And the theme of this title sequence, which was beautifully done, is to show, he wanted to show the power and the majesty of Rome yeah. and show the violence 
and the corruption and eventually the destruction of Rome. And you go through all of these images, an eagle, a snake, statues, a hand holding a dagger, and then you see Spartacus, you see basically Spartacus's face and then the whole thing collapses. Of all things fairest, sang the poet, first among cities and home of the gods is golden Rome. Yet even at the zenith of her pride and power, the Republic lay fatally stricken with a disease called human slavery. Human slavery. There's no question. And, and this ends with kind of talking about how this is this revolt mm-hmm. of the slaves, but really we didn't banish slavery for another 2,000 years. Right. You know? And so it's already setting it within sort of a, a somewhat of a modern context. Yes, very much so. And yeah. also the themes are just starting yeah. to show themselves throughout and certainly as we just said with kirk douglas wanting to cast a certain way that's also a bit of a theme that he's trying to work through uh, with absolutely the film as well well and it, you know like i don't think that this is a directly about the blacklist right you know like you could say that uh, arthur miller's the crucible is a is a play that is a metaphor for the blacklist of the time yes i don't think this movie is that but there's a lot here mm-hmm. trumbo's anger you know uh, yeah, is here right. yeah but i also think uh, douglas's performance Right. This is him navigating this story about his own life, this idea of being a slave and being a lower class and being forgotten and him persevering through it until he's leading this uh, thing where he sacrifices himself at the end and in a way sacrificing himself for Trumbo, possibly. You know, when he does what he does. A hundred percent agree. hundred percent. This was shot in Death Valley and we see slaves who are, you know, gathering rocks or whatever, some kind of work on a mine or something. And uh, this sequence was shot by Anthony Mann. Yeah. This is, this is, he is the director. It's one of the first things they shot. Here's something I didn't know. My assumption was that Saul Bass did the titles. Yeah. He did all sorts of stuff on this movie, (laughs) including finding this location. Oh, okay. Is that he, it seems like he was this weird sort of, Jack of all trades who would pop up in various areas and give design advice and idea advice and conceptual advice to this right. movie. It's very, very strange. Um, and we see uh, slaves working and we see that this is uh, Libya and we see Kirk Douglas looking bearded and yeah. dirty and he's carrying a huge basket of stones. Which I think looks like it is a huge basket of stones. Yeah, it looks believable. I, it does not look like this is fake. It looks like he's got 150 pounds of stones yeah. on his back. And a guy sort of tumbles and he drops the stones down the hill and tries to help this guy. And that doesn't go over well. And one of the guards kicks him and he grabs him and bites him by the ankle. Yeah. It is vicious and nasty. And Howard Fast hated this. This is the guy who wrote the novel. Oh, wow. In fact, he hates this movie. Oh. Yeah, he's not a fan. He thinks that they misunderstood. They made Kirk Douglas too brutal. And that's how Spartacus wasn't noble. And it didn't show the themes right. And yeah, he's got all sorts of problems with it. And he thinks that Spartacus was this great man. And that watching him bite this guy in the ankle ruins that. Yeah. Which I think he's totally wrong. Yes, agreed. One thing, other thing I should point out. uh, You know, we always try to say some of the real history. There is very little known about Spartacus. Yes. We don't know much about who he really was. He might have come from the Black Sea region. He might have been a slave. There's also a lot of speculation that he might have been a Roman soldier who deserted, and that's why he knows something about military strategy, Mm -hmm. but we really don't know. I have have some facts, which I can say as we go through, but this ain't going to be like Braveheart. (laughs) I can't tell you whether or not this is accurate because we really don't know. And as he's having this fight with this guy, who is coming up but Peter Ustinov, mm-hmm. who plays Batias, 
Um, and he is something. I mean, to me, it's the, when you get past Douglas and Olivier, it's the Houston F. Lawton show yeah. throughout. And it's great to watch. And Houston F. is a great kind of uh, smarmy guy who, who yeah. doesn't mind being elitist amongst the people he thinks below them, but then doesn't mind getting on his hands and knees in front of the people who are above him either. So he's a, he's a sneaky little weasel. Yeah, he's a con man. And what's yeah. so funny, too, he's, he sm- basically thinks that he's smarter than everybody around oh, him. yes. Until, until he gets to Charles Lawton. Right. Like, Charles Lawton kind of has his number, but everyone else. And so he'll do these little, almost like Bugs Bunny-ish, or like Eddie Murphy in uh, a Beverly Hills Cop, where he'll throw a little joke in. Yeah. Knowing that nobody's going to pick up on what he's saying and a lot of this stuff is written by Yusinov. Oh, it's is that really? He, yeah, he just oh. he just made up and he's improvising on the set. Like there's a beat as he's walking up is that there's the guy holding the parasol yeah, to keep yeah. him out of the sun. And they're shooting in Death Valley. It's really hot. Right. It, what's really happening is the guy's holding the parasol behind him so the shade is not over him. Right. And so he says as an improv on camera, sun's over there. Pay these people. <laughs> a lot of the little quips, a lot of the little things, wow. those are Yusinov lines. Uh, and Yusinov, we, what we find out about him is that his character is uh, uh, a traitor in Gladiators. Yeah. Is that he is looking for a few good men, a few good specimens. <laughs> And he uh, goes and looks in one guy's teeth. And the teeth thing, by the way, that's all Yusinov's idea. Mm-hmm. And some of it, Kirk didn't know he was going to do ahead of time. And they say, oh, there's this other guy over here. He, he, you don't want him. He bit a guard. And, the, and, and Yusinov's like, no, that's exactly what I want. Yeah. And they go look at him. And the, the seething anger coming out of Kirk's face as he's God. examined by this guy. No one does anger like he does. Uh, uh, restrained fury. Yeah. Yes, restrained fury at every second. You smell like a rhinoceros. Which would they know what rhinoceros is? I don't know. Anyway. Well, uh, <laughs> all right. Historically <laughs> accurate. <laughs> now I feel like I need to answer this question. Here's what I do know. Yeah. One of the things the Romans did whenever they went and conquered somewhere is they brought back animals and yes. people and treasure and plants and all sorts of stuff. So it's possible, but it seems pretty unlikely. Yes. Um. So in the middle of shooting, we get back to... Um, Yusinov's villa, mm-hmm. and this is where he sort of trains everybody, and he makes a speech to them. And yeah. again, a lot of the speech is written by Yusinov, and he says, A gladiator's like a stallion, must be pampered. You'll be oiled, bathed, shaved, massaged, taught to use your heads. A good body with a dull brain is as cheap as life itself. And we see that there's this guy who's like their trainer who used to be a gladiator. Approximately half our graduates live for five, ten, ten years. Some of them even attain freedom and become trainers themselves, Marcellus. (laughs) And then we hear a mention of uh, Spartacus, who's still glaring. Like, he's got the full glare on all the time. Yeah, Marcellus, watch the second from the right in front. He's a Thracian. They're going to kill him for hamstringing a guard. We'll break him of that. Don't overdo it, Marcellus. It has quality. I love that. And all of this is directed by Anthony Mann. Yeah. And Yusinov had also directed a film. And so Yusinov is whispering in Anthony Mann's ear all the time. <laughs> and Anthony Mann sounds like not a strong personality right, and right. kept bending to Yusinov. And Kirk is not happy with him bending to Yusinov. And now we're starting to go behind schedule. So we're going behind schedule. Yusinov is sort of taking over. He's And Kirk is getting more and more frustrated. And the studio is pissed. So two weeks into shooting, they come to Kirk and say, you got to fire this guy. Yeah. And Kirk agrees. He's not happy with the way things are going either. Right. 
Um, it's over budget. It's dis- it's behind schedule. And so Kirk fires him. And who does he call up but Stanley Kubrick, who's playing in a poker game. And, and he goes to, you know, he answers the phone. And then Kubrick says to the poker guys, game's over. <laughs> and he says, give me the script. He reads the script that night. He agrees to do it for $150,000. The entire budget of Paz of Glory is $900,000. Right. You know, this is a lot of money. And Kirk says, well, how long do you need to shut, do we need to shut down for you to prep and get ready to shoot? You want to shut down for a week? And Kirk goes, no, I'll be on the set tomorrow morning. Kubrick says that. I'm sorry. Kubrick says, I'll be on the set tomorrow morning. Wow. Yeah. And so the next day he shows up and starts directing. Wow. This is a $12 million movie. The most expensive movie ever made at Universal. I think it becomes the most expensive movie of all time at this moment. Yeah. Would later to be beat by Cleopatra, which is like the next year, I think. Right. right. Um, but I mean, just he and, and Kubrick just steps right in. Gotta admire the chutzpah. Yeah, man. And now we brought in another prima donna with really, really strong opinions. You know, I mean, like Kubrick is not a person that likes to negotiate. <laughs> and he's going to oversee Dalton Trumbo, Kirk Douglas, Peter Ustinov, Charles Lawton, and, and Olivier. 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 This is, this is, we're walking into a lot. <laughs> right now, Kirk is getting clean, cleaned up, and we walk in a line to him get his calf branded. Mm-hmm. And we are training, and Marcella singles out Spartacus. What's your name, slave? Spartacus. Give him your sword. Take it. Did you think of the Dirty Dozen in this scene? Oh. No, it it brings to mind Gladiator. Oh, yeah. The Russell Crowe yeah. film. When he goes into that sequence with Oliver Reed and everybody, right. and Jumman Hansu, like all of those people there, that's what it felt like to me, that he is singled out as special for some reason. Uh, they don't know his history. They don't know who we are, but there's something about him that radiates a specialist. So they're going to mess with it until right. they get a reaction. And he basically gives him a sword and it's like, kill me, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I get your point, but he does it because it's Lee very Marvin much the, does the posy yeah. scene. Yeah. Yep. Um, except the difference is as he pushes him and pushes him, Spartacus does not react. No. He doesn't. You can see how angry he is. Oh, God. Yeah, but he, he doesn't. So good. To which Marcellus's response is, You're not as stupid as I thought. You might even be intelligent. That's dangerous for slaves. But you just remember, from now on, everything you do, I'll be watching. Later on, uh, one of the things that's really interesting about the way they design the sets is that the slave's set is multi-layered or or multi-leveled and they Mm. go down. And so you have these great shots of them descending into their quarters, Mm. which looks really, really good. And the person who came up with that concept is Saul Saul Bass. Bass. (laughs) That's what I mean. There's all these things. (laughs) <laughs> that he did and now we meet some of our other uh gladiators we see woody strode for the first yes, time yes. we see this guy who's crixus this is john ireland who mm-hmm. kind of becomes his friend who says you did the right thing every once in a while marcellus likes to kill a man as an example and then he sits next to woody strode and he asks him now woody strode is african-american act- yes. an actor jo- acted in john ford movies he was i believe a ucla a uh, star mm. football player. He's one of the first African Americans to play in the NFL. Yeah. He was a decathlete. I mean, this is a, and then went on to have this acting career. And I love him. He's great. Yeah, he's great in the professionals. Mm-hmm. He's damn good in Once Upon a Time in the West. And mm. so he has his little moments uh, throughout the throughout history of Hollywood. Yeah. That Woody Strode is known uh, uh, for the work he does. And he's one of those guys where in a different world, 
he would have been a movie star. Yes, absolutely. You know? He's really he's, he's amazing physically. Mm-hmm. He's really charismatic and he's really interesting to yeah. and 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 Kirk kind of talks to him and asks to know his name. What's your name? You don't want to know my name. I don't want to know your name. And Kirk's kind of taken back. Just a friendly question. Gladiators don't make friends. If we were in the arena together, I'll have to kill you. Which is a great setup for where this is going to go. Right. You know, because in fact, exactly the opposite is going to happen. Yeah. Um, it's also one thing to consider, and I don't want to put too heavy on it. This is 1960, right. in the midst of the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. and so the fact that they chose to have an African American actor play this part and do what he's going to do yes. later in the film yes. is a big deal. Very important. Yeah, and we fade to black. Now there's a line of women going by Ustinov, and he is sending these women off to the gladiators, and now up walks not a German actress, <laughs> but Gene Simmons. So let's talk about how this happened. Kubrick comes onto the shoot and he's looks at all the things that have been shot and he's starting to direct and he meets this German actress and he goes to Kirk and he says, if you want me to stay as the director of this picture, we have to fire her. Yeah. She's terrible. She doesn't speak English well. She has no emotion. She's completely flat. She's awful. And Kirk goes, no, she's working on it. She's going to be okay. I think she's going to, I think, and, Kirk go, and Kubrick goes, no, <laughs> I'm walking off the movie if you don't fire. And Kirk goes, no, 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 you got to give her a chance. And then Kubrick says, and I just love this. This is such a crazy thing. He says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to make you a bet. And Kirk goes, what are you talking about? He says, we're going to invite her to your house and I'm going to fire her. And Kirk goes, no, 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 I don't want to fire her. He's like, listen to me. I'm going to fire her, but it's going to be fake. And I will bet you that she shows no emotion whatsoever. Mm. If she shows emotion when I fire her, I will take it back and I will keep her on the movie. If she knows shows no emotion, which is what I'm predicting, then the firing is for real and she's off the movie. Right. And Kirk goes, okay. Just Jesus. Horribly cruel. And it's very cruel. I mean, they're doing a film about slavery and the elite right? stepping on the lower classes. And here they are messing with this actress. It's terrible. So they, <laughs> these they two do, elites. They do exactly that. Yeah. Kubrick fires her. She shows no emotion. Just as Kubrick predicted, mm. and the firing is for real. And Kirk goes, "Okay, I guess she's really fired." And then she goes to the bathroom where they hear her screaming and weeping. Yeah. So they still fired her. Even but after they still them fired up. her. Yeah, yeah. And then Kirk rushes and go calls up his friend Gene Simmons and says, "Hey, are you still free?" And she's like, "I'm on the plane," because <laughs> she really wanted this part. Yeah, yeah. And so she shows up as Verenia, and Marcellus says to send her to some other person, and Yusinov says, no, send her to Spartacus. Yeah. And she goes there. One of the interesting things that Kubrick did when he came on the movie is that he cut the vast majority of Spartacus's lines for the first third of the film. Wow. He had a lot more dialogue, and, and Kubrick cut it all out. Yeah. And Kirk resisted. And then accepted it. Yeah. And it's one of the great choices. Agreed. Yeah. Because it's the silence that makes this really work. He's an actor who can say so much by saying nothing. Yeah. yeah. She comes into his quarters. We hear the love theme. He walks towards her. He touches her face gently. He puts a hand on her neck and she starts to move and he stops her. He touches her hair. She lowers her clothes from her shoulders and he says, I've never had. Kirk was very nervous about this line. Oh. He thought, with his reputation in Hollywood, 
which is a man who had been with many women, sure. that people were going to laugh when they heard this in the theater. He really thought people would just bust up laughing, wow. that they couldn't see Kirk Douglas as a virgin. I think it's an amazing moment. Yeah. It's so vulnerable. You're an actor. Can you bring this moment to life? And he, he did does. a great job bringing him up to life, just like Schwarzenegger did in Conan. And, 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 and there's this moment that actually feels, as much as the situation is really fraught with a lot of stuff, yeah. it feels genuinely tender. Yes. You know, it is a very tender moment. And then as they face each other, we hear laughter. <laughs> and we look up. And there is Ustinov and Marcellus looking down. You have one now, Spot. You must take her. Go away. Mm, come, come. Be generous. We must learn to share our pleasures. And Kirk leaps up to the bars and grabs onto them and screams, I'm not an animal! Yeah. That's an amazing moment. Yeah. I, that, we won't hear again until uh, Elephant Man. Elephant Man, sure. Right. Yeah. John Hurt, yeah. And, and to me, this is why you take away most of his lines. Yes. Because when he says, I'm not an animal, it's so powerful. And they kind of step down on him. And Yusinov says, direct your courage to the girl, Spartacus. And then he looks over at Verenia and he offers her back her clothes. Yep. And she turns away while she dresses and they face each other. He asks her name. She says, Verenia. And then Marcellus and Yusinov enter because they're not getting the show they want her. You may not be an animal, Spartacus, but this sorry show gives me very little hope that you'll ever be a man. You go back all the way to what you said earlier about uh, Ustinov whispering in Anthony Mann's ear, right? This is Ustinov definitely trying to craft a performance for himself. Yeah. A showcase performance for himself in this film. Now, you have this line here, which is what he says to Kirk Douglas. And he's an older actor. I think he was a younger actor right around the same time uh, of Kirk Douglas. I, I don't know. I, I would think there's somewhere similar. Yeah. yeah. And so, but he doesn't, he's not the one leading the film. Right. So then here he is saying this thing, you'll ever, you'll ever be a man. I wonder if that's in the script. I wonder if Yusnoff added that as a little shot at Kirk a little bit after uh, Kubrick has come on. This it's little a good shot. Question. It's you know? a good question. So it, but it's a great moment that totally works uh, on so many levels. And that's why I think it's great. Like you said, they remove the dialogue. It makes you feel sympathy for him. Well, and, and what's interesting is where you see, normally we think of what makes a character is the active choices they do, the yes. things they do. And particularly a hero, he must do heroic things. Right. And what, have we, what we've actually seen, other than the biting the ankle, is what we've actually seen is Spartacus's restraint. Yes. We've seen him choose not to act. You know, mm-hmm. when he could have acted. Right. Uh, which just shows a lot of wisdom. Yeah. The training sequence. I love it. <laughs> and this is so, it's like early training. And like, we haven't kind of done this thing in films. We've got some device that spins around that you have to jump. And yeah. Yeah. That's really hard, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. <laughs> sure. I had a, a martial arts class where it was basically a guy swung a sword. It was jump, duck, jump, duck, wow. jump. You do that for a couple of minutes. <laughs> You're gas. Yeah, yeah. They they then they take the she's off of that, and it's actually blades that they're jumping and duck ducking. And Kirk is really doing it. Yeah. He's in great shape, by the way. Oh yeah. I mean, particularly for the pre Arnold, pre Bruce Lee era of physical definition. Yeah. Well, and it was frowned upon. Right. Kirk talks about this. Him and Burt Lancaster would work out secretly without telling anybody about it because mm, it was kind of frowned upon at the, at the time, which I think that's part of their uh, kinship mm. and friendship too. Because they're both really physical yeah. guys. I mean, Bert was like an acrobat? Or? Bert was a swimmer. swimmer. He was an Olympic, uh, Olympic trial swimmer, yeah. Wow. Um, and they're practicing their sword strikes. They're using wooden swords. Um, and as this is all happening, he turns and he sees Verenia, mm. who is in the kitchen, and smiles. And it's, again, their relationship is largely silent. Yeah. 
there's a sequence where he's fighting Marcellus and getting his ass kicked. Yes. Um, and now he is sure, speaking of being in good shape, now he is shirtless in this tight outfit. And it looks, I mean, he looks fantastic. Yeah, he does. And and Marcellus is painting him yeah. with where, these are where the, the, the fatal wounds are. These are the slow wounds. These are the crippling wounds. It's extremely demeaning. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's Verinia. Right. And he sees her and he looks over at her and then Marcellus sees that he's looking at her. Why are you looking at that girl? <laughs> Since all you can do is look at girls. All right, slave. Go ahead and look. And he pushes his face towards Verinia. Right. Brutal. With the red. Yep. Yeah. It's night. Spartacus is looking up through the bars of the cage. The door opens and there's Verinia again. So we think there's going to be a moment between them. Yeah. And then Marcellus comes and goes, No. No, this one goes to the Spaniard. So it's Russell Crowe? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and then he says, Have a good night, Spartacus. Yeah. What a dick. Oh, uh, well, you know. Yeah. Oh, terrible. You got to have little villains in the And films. the camera pushes in on him. And again, we fade out. Now we're in the kitchen. And the gladiators come in. And Kirk sits, and we hear the love theme, and there's Verinia, and his eyes keeps his eyes down, and she's going person to person, filling the bowls, and then he looks up, and there's that face that's just made out of granite. Yeah, want to know something crazy? So you know your question when we started uh, this thing about Jewish people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you want to know what my next note is? What's that? Not how we picture Jews. Huh. That's what I. Yeah. So it's. Ex- I wrote down exactly the thing that you asked at yeah, the beginning yeah, of the. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Marcellus walks by, which I think is great, by the way. Yeah. yeah. And then there she is in front of him, and she re- she fills his cup, and he very, very quietly asks, Did they hurt you? And she very quietly says, No. She absorbs it. Yeah. That he has a care for her, right? And then answers. There are shades of all, there are shades of um, scenes in other epics that come down years later, decades later from this movie, right? This whole interaction with her is very reminiscent of what Gibson has with uh, um, Catherine McCormick's character in Braveheart, right? This kind of distant little communications because it's kind of forbidden for them to be out in public with their relationship. Mm-hmm. Things like that are in here. We mentioned Gladiator, mentioned uh, Dirty Dozen, which is a little bit of a war epic. Uh, those kinds of things are all kind of coursing through this film you see the influences later on from what this film has set up kubrick has set up well and, and ben-hur too because yes. you have the character that has to deal with all their anger and yep. galley slave and all those things and i think too like yeah. it relates to braveheart as well is that Vrinia and spartacus are people with no power yes where the powerful people get to do whatever they want with them right and uh, we have all the prima nocta things i was just gonna in, say yep. in braveheart yep which is what is being threatened. And what can we assume has happened to Verinia? Yeah, she had to have sex with that Spaniard. Yeah. Yep. And maybe there's been, we don't know how long she's been here. Oh, sure. Or what she's had to do. Yes. And so and so the tenderness of did they hurt you yeah. and her absorbing it and saying no, right. there's a lot in there. Also, I think it's, it's smart to not make her this embittered, angry thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. you, then you can buy the love story of both of them because they're both bringing out their better natures in each other's company. The other thing, and it's going to obviously come up later as we get into some of the other scenes, but mm. sex is dealt with, and rape, too, yes. in a f- very frank way. Or It's not frank. It's somewhat subtle, but it's still, it's very present. Yeah. There is no question about what Verinia was in there with yep. him for yep. and why Marcellus and Yusinov were watching. And also why 
uh, Spartacus had to ask her if they hurt her. Yep. Because he knows, he's heard what happens to these women in yeah. these situations. There's no, yeah, this is what it's about. Right. Um, we got some more training, uh, some more guys with wooden swords, and you see Spartacus watching and studying. Mm. By the way, there's a sort of a vertical motif in the way we see these the fence and the way it's built yeah. and the spikes that go up, which eventually they're going to topple down. Saul Bass. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, Saul Bass actually directed the movie. Not <laughs> well, Kubrick. There's a lot of Not stuff. Kubrick. Not Kubrick. <laughs> Again, we're in the kitchen. I think this scene is amazing. Oh, yeah. She's filling cups. We hear the love theme. He touches her arm. The lighting is just gorgeous. And just for a moment, she takes his hand. Yeah. Almost brought me to tears. Yeah. And again, this is why you take a lot of that dialogue out. Mm -hmm. I mean, just the hands touching is so tender and so lovely. Right. And so like, words would ruin it. You well, know, this is Kubrick understanding his medium even more. You know, mm -hmm. because in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, how much silence are we going to get right. throughout that whole movie that's still conveying an incredible amount of emotion? Well, and this is... I had a weird thought watching this. Mm. So Kubrick has pretty much disavowed this film. Yeah. You know, like he said, like he doesn't list it in his movies that he directs. He's not proud of it. Right. Because it's the only film that he didn't have total artistic control yeah. of. Everything else he did, he had, was 100% Kubrick movies. I kind of, watching this, I went, man... It would have been cool to have a few Kubrick as a craftsman movies, mm. you know, like because Kubrick's never done a love story, right? Except in Spartacus, there's everything is fraud and complicated, like relationships in The Shining and Clockwork Orange and Eyes Wide Shut, and you know these are all difficult, right? <laughs> painful, complicated things, and just seeing what his genius could bring to two people touching hands. Yeah. I was like, and, and there are a lot of other shots in this movie where I'm like, man, that's so not Kubrick, right. but so well done. Yeah. Like, that I, it would have been cool if, if for a few movies he just was a work for hire guy. You know, I mean, he wouldn't have liked it, but oh. I wish I could have seen it. We got some visitors coming. And at first, Ustinov is like, oh, you know, who cares? And then we hear that the visitor is Crassus. Yeah. And by the way, Crassus is a real person. Yes. He was the richest man in Rome. Um, and he was a very, very powerful person. And um, I love that Ustinov says, Second best wine. Uh, no, well, the best, but small goblets. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a Ustinov line, but it sure sounds like it. certainly feels like yeah. it, yeah. Oh, and there's a statue there that they decide to cover up, and that is a statue of Gracchus, Gracchus. which is Charles Lawton's character. Which who he legitimately has a connection of loyalty to. Yeah. Uh yeah. And we and obviously Crassus does not. Right. The fact that we have the names Gracchus and Crassus made it really hard when I was typing the notes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> there's a lot of weird autocorrecting and it's just, it's just <laughs> tough. And here he shows up. He's got these two women with him, one of whom is Nina Foch, uh, who was a teacher at USC when I was at USC. So I yeah. I didn't I real a lot of People took acting classes from her in my semester at oh, USC, wow. and I didn't. She is an American in Paris. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, wow. Really? She taught at USC? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Oh. Well, and I, it, my I would have attitude, loved to have known her, man. My, it was sort of the acting class was sort of optional for people that were t taking to, learning to be directors yeah. and knew nothing about actors. Right. And I had come out of a theater program, so I was sort of like, well, I've taken tons of acting classes. More important for me to take editing classes and more writing classes and things like that. Right. And I, now looking at it now, I'm like, what was wrong with me? <laughs> take classes from Nina Foch. Yeah. Allow me to bring you up to date, Lanista. We're here to celebrate the marriage of my brother to the Lady Claudia. 
A mating of eagles, your sanctity. And what we find out is that there's a marriage that they're celebrating, and there's this young guy whose name is Glabarus. Yeah. And that they ask to have a little demonstration to see a fight between two pairs of gladiators. Two pairs to the death. To the death, your lordship. Well, surely you don't think we came all the way to Capua for gymnastics. She is horrible. Oh, God. She and this other woman are just so awful. She's the one that wants it to the death. The yeah. older uh, Nina Fox's character. Yeah. She wants it to the death. Well, and the other woman, she's all into it, too. Yeah, she's kind of, uh, I don't know, what do you call it? Strangely titillated by it. It is freaky. Yeah. Like, they are like... It Bloodthirsty, is, almost. Blood th- oh, yeah. yeah. It is horrible. Right. And, of course, Yusinov is like, I'm going to lose good property. When they're sold, their new masters may do with them as they wish, but uh, here, no. We never fight them to the death. Today is an exception. But the ill feeling it would spread through the whole school, and then the cost. Oh, the cost. uh, Name your price. I love that Olivier, as a smart actor who loves the camera, is turned right to face the camera. Yeah. But Nina Foster and the other girl are backs to the camera, Ustinov is above them facing the camera, but it is you're seeing uh, Olivier's comfortability with the situation and laissez faire attitude about it all. I'll pay you whatever it is, set it up, we'll make it happen. Yeah, and he was just like, Oh my god, yeah, <laughs> just the casualness of it. Olivier, by the way, almost never appeared without a fake nose, <laughs> yeah, Wells, too. <laughs> and so, he, yeah. this has got a fake nose on, no surprise. And then when he they offer so much money that Ustinov agrees, and then the ladies say. Of course, we shall want to choose them ourselves. You do have a certain variety, don't you? Uh, yeah, inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. Is that inexhaustible? Um, <laughs> and now we're back with the gladiators who have now heard that it's going to be a fight to the death. Yeah. And they ask, well, who's it going to be? And we don't know. And there's a look between them. And Xerxes, who's now we realize they become friends, yeah. says, what if they match you and me? Spartacus says, they won't. But if they did, would you fight? I'd have to, so would you. Would you try to kill me? Yes, I'd kill. I'd try to stay alive, and so would you. First of all, imagine you have this friend, and now you have to have this conversation. Yeah. That's the first amazing thing. The second thing is I think about this scene in context with the final scene between him and Tony Curtis. Right. Because that is the opposite. Right. You know, or it's not the opposite because he's still going to kill him. Right. But it's killing him to save him. It's mercy kill. Yeah. Um, And I think that that setting this up and these ideas here Mm -hmm. are so important for what's going to happen later. Sure, sure. And now what we have is I can, it's like a cattle call. Yeah. All the gladiators are lined up and the two women are very excited. Oh, they're magnificent. They're casting agents. Yeah. (laughs) And they're, they're essentially ogling them like pieces of meat. Yes. May I suggest uh, Praxis, vegetable tiger? I don't like him. Pieces, and and it's like it's the idea that it's pieces of meat that they want to watch die. Right. That is some sick shit. It isn't the dudes asking for it. No, that's what I found fascinating. It's it, the two women. It is. It is. It is a weird scene. Yeah. And of course, Ustinov keeps trying to direct them to the least valuable yeah, guy. No, he's he's small, but he's very very compact. <laughs> Um, and this is where I mean that sort of Bugs Bunny-ish, like all the little jokes, yes. you know, like the way he speaks is, you can hear all the stuff. He's just throwing them in randomly yeah. when he can. Yep. And we talk about, you know, people that fight with Trident and Net, 
And that's when they see Woody Strode. Yeah. I'll take him. A driver, oh no. For you, I want only the best lady, Helen. I the I Ethiopian. want the most beautiful. It's a, yeah, it's a weird kind of white-black thing, too, the way the woman talks about him, right? They're excited by this black warrior. I'll take the big black one. The big black one. Jesus Christ, man. Yeah. Yeah. And then they see Kirk Douglas. Mm-hmm. And he again, there's that look of just <laughs> searing fire. And, yeah. they, and they say, he's impertinent. I'll take him. <laughs> and Yusinov again, trying to protect himself, says, uh, Impertinent, yes. And he's a coward to boot. I'll have him, have him flogged. Uh, no, over there, Lady Helena, the beast of Libya. <laughs> I prefer the coward. And then one of the two women says, If both men are down and refuse to continue to fight, your trainer will slit their throats like chickens. We want no tricks. Just brutal, man. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then we take it to an even another level of just fucked upness. Yeah. I feel so sorry for the poor things in all this heat. Don't put them in those suffocating tunics. Let them wear just enough for modesty. Whatever they wear, lady, they'll bless your name. Yeah. Literally, this is such a weird scene. I want them. I want the good-looking ones, the yeah. big black ones. Yeah. If they d- don't fight, slit their throats, and oh, by the way, strip them down. Yeah. Ooh. It's dehumanizing throughout the whole sequence. They're dehumanizing them. It's mind blowing, man. And, and and of course, Yusinov is not. And it's a, he's such a f- interesting rogue because right. he's a horrible person. Yes. Obviously, he literally is a slave keeper, right? And is totally fine watching this. Slay these guys have sex, putting you know, yeah. whipping them, torturing them, whatever. He's totally fine with all that, but he does have some core of something. He's a fucked up dad, is what he is, <laughs> right? Like, he's like, I want to be involved in your shit, uh, but like, but only I can fuck with you. I don't want anybody else fucking with you, and that's yeah. basically it. And he has this way of delivering a line. Yeah. So he says to them after they, they 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 say we want them basically stripped to their loincloths. He says, whatever they wear, lady, they'll bless your name, <laughs> and it's just dripping with sort of sarcasm yeah and they say to him are choosing has bored you and he says oh no no uh, most exciting i tingle (laughs) this is subtly brilliant jabs may i conduct your magnificences to the gallery now (laughs) and then we're left with this long shot of these four men standing in a cage yeah the guys who are going to fight to their death we're back up in the gallery uh and and this is when Olivier notices the covered statue of Gracchus. How far from Rome must I go to avoid that cunning face? And we hear a little bit about Gracchus and that they're competitive in the Senate. And Verinia has come in and she's pouring wine. And one of the someone says, oh, she smells of perfume. She smells delectable. And, of course, their only explanation is, first, well, she must have stolen the perfume. Right, right. Or she must have made an arrangement. Yeah, so in addition to her being used as a sex slave, they're accusing her of being dishonest, yeah. you know, and a thief and a thief. Yeah. Like, um, and then uh, Glabrous, this other guy, goes to check out her ankles and she pours wine on the guy. Right, right. Um, but it's, once again, and, and you know, once, these are movies. We analyze the movies. That scene, that scene is the upper class unfairly vilifying the lower class because the lower class happens to have something that the upper class thinks they couldn't possibly afford. Right. They couldn't possibly be able to get without nefarious means. Suddenly, throughout this movie, there is so many moments of topical, still topical, sadly, symbolism or themes that they're trying to say about society. And it's brilliant. 
Well, think about this one. Like, uh, I hundred percent agree. Yeah. Uh, at the very beginning of the movie, mocks Kirk Spartacus for smelling like a rhinoceros. Yes. Spartacus has been working in the mines. It's not how. What access does he have to clean himself? Right. It's not his fault. He smells like a rhinoceros. Right. And now we have someone who doesn't smell like a rhinoceros. They smell okay, and now they're in trouble for that. Yeah. You know, it's the and and of course this is coming off of the horrendous scene of picking these guys to fight to the death. Exactly. And it's like the you know. <laughs> The degree to which they cannot view the humanity of these people. Right. Well, and you know what? This is the thing about Yusinov's character. Despite all of the shittiness of him, he does see these people as humans. Yes. You know, he doesn't have that status class thing of that these are different. Yeah. He knows they have feelings and stuff like He just doesn't care that yeah. much. And he's really training them to fight. Yeah. They really can fight. Yeah. So yeah. And there's a scene with Verinia where uh Crassus kind of questions her a little bit and finds out that she has some education and that mm -hmm. she's from Britain. Uh and he makes an offer. And she's sold to Crassus. Two thousand sesterces. Yeah. 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 And I don't know how much a sesterce is. I don't either. Um and then we find out one more thing is that Glabrus is going to be the head of the garrison of Rome. Right. And that Crassus has gotten in this is an important role for him. And it's also important in his sort of battle of politics with Gracchus. Yes. Back to the gladiators. The music is heavy. The guys walk out in these big cloaks. We hear the women giggling. We're in this box. I this is so beautifully shot. The way the way Kubrick does this is that we're in this dark box with the four of them. We don't know who's going to be matched with who. Um, and then the door opens and Marcellus is there and he pulls out Xerxes and the other guy, yeah. leaving Spartacus and Woody alone in the box. The guys take off their cloaks and inside the box, we watch the door close. Woody and Kirk exchange a look as we hear, Those who are about to die salute you. That sentence is like so horrible. Mm. Like, Oh, so not only do I have to fight for your entertainment, but I have to salute you. Right. For the opportunity for the, to die. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. Ugh, horrible. And we hear the fight, but don't see it. That we're with Woody and Kirk, listening to men fight to the death, knowing they're going to be next. Right. And, and, and again, like the basic filmmaking rule is you film the interesting thing that's happening. And they're choosing not to film the fight and choose film these two guys. And they look at each other. We see little bits through the slats, just a little bit, and Woody watches Kirk, and Kirk looks away. Woody smiles, yeah. and there's that look of intensity from Kirk Douglas. A body slams against the box that they're in, and one of them gets killed, and we hear the applause. And then Kirk and look, Woody look at each other again as the doors open, and we see one man being dragged out, and Xerxes, uh, Kirk's friend, has survived. Mm -hmm. And now they call the next pair. And Verinia is watching. Spartacus makes eye contact with her. Yeah. Again. Those who are about to die salute you. And now we get the battle. Yeah. Woody has a trident and a net, and he's fighting that trident one-handed, which seems really difficult to me. Um, Kirk has a short sword and the world's smallest shield. Yeah. I don't understand like why, you, <laughs> why anyone would want a shield so tiny. Yeah. Uh, it's a good fight scene, I think, for the era. Sure. Um, I don't think it's, you know, at the level of fight choreography that we might see later, but it's right. a good fight scene. Um, and one of the crazy things about it is the women are watching. 
Verinia is watching. Yeah. Ustinov is watching. Crassus and Glabrus, they're not paying any attention. To me, it felt like a ball game when you go with your friends. Totally. You're just sitting there talking, and and you know maybe that's what he was trying to say by shooting it from up top. Yep. Kubrick was to make it seem as if it's that's it was legitimately just sport. Yeah. What these men were doing to each other for other men who were watching. That is exactly what it is. And they're going at each other. And Kirk uh, gets kind of caught in the net and he gets out and he drives forward. He gets gets cut across Mm -hmm. the chest, uh, slips inside, catches the net, drives in, hits a shield to Woody's uh, belly, gets tripped, has to dodge the trident. No shield now. Freeney is still watching. Kirk takes a shot to the head. He breaks the trident. And then Woody Strode knocks Kirk Douglas for a, like a, 10 yeah, feet. Yeah. Like you see the bed. It doesn't look fake. No. It looks like a really powerful, strong guy put a real hit yeah. on Kirk Douglas. And of course, all of this is Kirk Douglas. He's doing all his own stunts. Yeah. And Kirk is down on the ground and Woody has him dead to rights. He's against the wall. The trident is at his throat. Yeah. And Nina Foch gives the thumbs down signal, which means you have to kill him. Right. And there is a pause and Kirk prepares himself. And Woody Strode is not killing him. Yeah. And the women are upset. Well, why doesn't he kill him? Kill him. Well, what's the matter now? And he turns and he throws that trident. One of the reasons they cast him was he's a decathlete. Ah. He threw javelin. That makes sense. Um, And he climbs up that wall and he's speared from behind. And unlike Woody Strode's uh, trident throw, this is on a, a line. Mm-hmm. It's on a wire. That's how that spear goes into his back. Okay. And then he climbs up and he just gets to the gallery when Crassus Olivier draws his knife and stabs him right in the back of the neck and yeah. his face splattered with blood. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. I think this, this scene is so powerful. It's symbolism, once again. Yeah. Right? The black man unleashing the rage at the elite white that wants to keep him in a position. And as soon as he fights to climb up, literally climb up to a higher Mm -hmm. position, he is stabbed in the back for sport by the uh, richest white guy in the uh, right. And blood splatters across the face, which is the blood he carries for what the crimes he's done. It's like he's slaughtering an animal. Yes. That's how that feels. Because that's how he views it. Yeah. Right. It is so... And, and the thing is, is this act... Woody Strode, his character, is the guy who said, I don't want to know your name because I'm right. going to... If you're facing me, I'm going to kill you. Right. And then in this moment, he doesn't. Yeah. This is, without question, the cathartic transitional moment of the film. Yep. This moment of Spartacus about to die and this guy turning on the Romans... This is what changes the course of history. Yeah. Yeah. It is It is just a remarkable scene. Later on, the arena is empty. The camera moves down to find Verena behind bars. The gladiators are descending back down into their quarters. And what do they walk past but Woody Strode hanging upside down? Yeah. That's really him. He had to hang for a long time because Kubrick's trying to get the shot just right. Jesus. And so, and it's an it's a remarkable shot. Right, right, right. And what does Marcella says? He says he'll hang till he rots. Yeah. Uh it's later on at night. Uh guards at patrol walks past the gladiator. We see shadows passing. The camera pushes in on the gladiators. They're all thinking about what's happened and Kirk down in his hole looks up at the shadows and again we fade out. Yeah. We're back in the kitchen the next day, lining up for food. Kirk sees Verena uh, being taken away 
to a cart because Crassus has bought her. Marcellus tells Spartacus to take a last look. She's going to Rome. She's been sold. A gleeful last look. Yeah. Really argue. yeah. And, and Marcellus hits him. And Kirk attacks, and all the other gladiators attack. Right, and he drives Marcellus's fate in, face into a big pot of stew or soup. First of all, he broke the actor's jaw when at this moment. That is because his chin hits the edge of the bowl of soup. Holy shit! Yeah, yeah. So Kirk was rough, uh, and and this is a. Sk- I mean, like, is this a stuntman or is this the actual? No, actor? the actor. He broke wow. his jaw. Um, and then later on as a stuntman because that actor didn't want to be held under soup yeah. the way Kirk Kirk really wasn't letting him up. You know, I mean, he wasn't going to kill him, but it was pretty intense. Yeah. And it's a pretty brutal death. And this is one of the things that was censored and then added back in. Yeah. Like they showed a tiny bit of it, but it's really brutal the way yeah. he drowns this guy. And now the gladiators fight back. There's trouble in the mess hall. They killed Marcellus and maybe the other two. Call out the guard. On second thought, I think I'll deliver this girl personally, <laughs> and he's out of there. And now we see the gladiators trying to force the gate, and they pick up that big stone thing that's filled with coals, and they drive it through the fence. They climb over the fence. Kirk jumps over that fence and jumps down while dodging a spear. Yeah. And it's a big jump. That's like a jumping down from a 12, 14-foot fence. Mm-hmm. Um, and just a brutal, brutal fight scene. They, they knock down that spear wall. They use it as like the points of the spears to thrust at the guards. Yeah. And then this crazy thing where they climb, some of the guys are under it and other guys are climbing over it. There's just no way to do this stuff safely. It is just <laughs> like, we got a lot of tough athletic guys. Yeah. And most of these were guys from the UCLA and USC football team. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're just like, we wanted just a bunch of young guys who were willing <laughs> to take risks and don't care if they get hurt. And that's oh. who they got. Um, and they drive the guards back and they take over the villa. Um, so one thing we do know is that Spartacus did escape uh, with about 70 slaves using kitchen implements uh, from a gladiator school in Capua. Hmm. Yeah. So that's that's one thing that is accurate. Okay. Uh, we don't know if it's pl- how it was planned or, or what precipitated it. Right. We do know that. Uh, and we fade out. And we're in Rome. And in the Senate, we're starting to hear about the slave revolt. Around Capua, they ravaged the countryside, forcing other slaves to join them, looting, robbing, burning everything while they make their camp in the escarpments of Vesuvius. And now we meet Charles Lawton. Yeah. Gracchus. This is maybe one of my favorite characters in any epic ever. Um, Because he's unabashedly himself. Yeah. But he's clearly the most intelligent person in whatever room he walks into. Yeah. Uh, and doesn't lord it over people. And I find him to be such a interesting character. Not without flaws, but certainly no. an interesting character. He's He is kind of down to earth mm-hmm. in a weird way yeah. and smart and practical. And what we get to is this idea of why don't we use the garrison of Rome to, head, to send them out? And this is, of course, the army that Glabarus, who is Crassus's guy, yeah. uh, is now in charge of. And they say, hey, will you take them out? And a senator goes, no, if we send out the garrison of Rome, who's going to protect us? And he goes, uh, I uh, did not say the whole garrison. Six cohorts will more than do the job. The rest can stay in Rome to save you from your housemaids. Um, I should have looked up what a cohort is. I think it, I don't remember. Ten cohorts are about 5,000 men. Okay. So if he's sending six, so well, maybe three? So it's 500 men per co- cohort. It so sounds right. 3,000 men. So 3,000 men, yeah. And he asks Glabrus if he accepts the charge. And Glabrus stands up 
very formally, and he says, I accept the charge if the Senate truly charges me. The garrison of Rome stands ready. And Lawton says, Slave hunting's a dirty business. It takes a brave commander to consent to it. I propose that we turn the city out tomorrow in tribute to Glabras as he marches through. It's, su- it's such a great, like, I'm sounding like I'm complimenting Yes. And and you, because Glabras ain't that smart, he's feeling complimented. Right. But that's not really what he's saying. Uh, because, of course, he's manipulating him. Yep. And then he says one more thing. Well, who are we going to have in temporary command right. of the garrison while you're gone? Is it okay if we have my friend Julius Caesar take over? And everyone applauses, applauds, and we go, oh, there's Julius Caesar, who has a small but pivotal role in the yeah. film. And that's play, he's played by John Gavin. Um, and later on, they're together. And now we hear that Gracchus's main point was to separate Glabrus from Crassus. Mm-hmm. We heard before that that's why Crassus put him in charge, was to be a check on Gracchus. Yeah. You know, this republic of ours is something like a rich widow. Most Romans love her as their mother. Crassus dreams of marrying the old girl, to put it politely. This metaphor is Rome as a woman mm-hmm. is going to come up multiple times. And there are going to be some ways that the treatment of this woman is going to come out in an interesting way. Yeah. And Gracchus buys a chicken. Uh, and because we're going to have like an old fashioned sacrifice. I thought you had reservations about the gods. Privately, I believe in none of them. Neither do you. Publicly, I believe in them all. Spoken like a true politician. Totally. That's what he is. Yep. Well, and this is what's interesting about, I think you hate Crassus. Right. I think you like Gracchus right. and Ustinov, but not because they're necessarily good guys. Right. right they're right. not. You know, they are complicated people. They just happen to be on the side of our hero, so therefore- Ish. Yeah, right, right. So therefore, by indirect connection, we support them, yeah. Because Gracchus would happily have Spartacus die- Oh, sure. If that helped his plans, and yes. he'd happily have Spartacus live if that helps his plans. Right. He's just a practical politician. Right. Now we're uh, with Crassus, who's arriving at his estate. Do you know where this was shot? No. This is shot at San Simeon. This is the oh. home of William Randolph Hearst. Wow. Yeah, that pool is the big outdoor pool that mm-hmm. of uh, of Hearst. Hmm. So we've gone to Xanadu. <laughs> Duplicon. Marcus Glabris in attendance. He awaits you in the antrium, sir. Excellent. What have we here? A gift from the governor of Sicily, sir. And there's a bunch of slaves lined up to see grasses. And there we see Tony Curtis. Yes. Who I do like in the movie. He is pretty boy. He is pretty. It is. He's so you can't get that accent, that New York yeah. accent. And uh, by the way, here's another Jew who. Yes, you know, good point. Yeah, uh, I told. I sang songs. <laughs> I for juggled, my master. For my master, I juggled. Um, I don't know where you get an accent like that. It's great. And so, <laughs> um, he is another person who begged Kirk Douglas to let him in the movie. Yeah. And he's an up-and-coming star. I think this is right after Seven Year Itch. And, oh, yeah, okay. And, and he's good buddies with Kirk Douglas. Right. And they hang out together, and they play tennis together. And he begged and begged and begged. And finally, Kirk called up Trumbo and said, you got to make a part for Tony Curtis. <laughs> and that's how he ends up in this movie. His name is Antoninus. And yes, when asked what he does, he says he's a singer of songs. For whom did you practice this wondrous talent? Hmm? For the children of my master. Whom I also taught the classics. Classics. <laughs> he's so pretty, man. Yeah, he's a very, very handsome guy. And then he's he's he goes, okay, you're going to be my body servant, and he gets sent out, and in comes Glabrus, who says, "Congratulate me," mm-hmm. and he tells him about how I'm going to take six cohorts to fight the the slave rebellion. Bloody guns! 
<laughs> Crassus loses it. Like, what an idiot. And I love his... I'm sorry, I'm used to exulting loudly to the gods or something. Yeah. As a compliment. In like, moments what? of triumph. In moments of triumph, yeah. that's right. And then he says, did Gracchus have something to do with this brilliant uh... affair? Yeah, he did. Do you think I made you commander of the garrison to control some rock patch on Vesuvius? It was to control the streets of Rome. And then the next question, who do you put in charge? Caesar. Under Caesar's. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Finding Gracchus in control of the mob and the Senate, you felt impelled to hand over the garrison to him also. <laughs> he set up all this stuff, and this guy just blows it. And of course, when Glabrus, he makes Glabrus see that this was kind of a dumb move, he, Glabrus is like, okay, well, I'll just refuse. And and I love Crassus's line. He says, One of the disadvantages of being a patrician is that occasionally you're obliged to act like one. You pledge the Senate to go and go, you must. And there's supposed to be a tribute. And he's like, no, d- just get out of town. Yeah. Just go, don't, don't have the tribute. Don't, not a drum, not a single drum. Nothing. Right. And h- sneak out, and hopefully you're not going to have to sneak back. Well, And I blame Crassus for this. You put Glavis, Glavis is not a smart guy. Why are you going to put yeah. a smart guy or a dumb guy in this situation? What would you expect was going to happen? Well, And now we get one more key piece of information. He's like, well, you have all these legions because Crassus is a general yeah. who has a big army. Why don't you just take the army into Rome? And he can't because this is one of the great Roman traditions is that other than the garrison of Rome, the all the armies must stay out. Yeah. And this is what later on, there's, there's a couple of people who have done this. Sala, who was one of the great generals before did this yeah. and the other person who does it is it's called crossing the rubicon yeah and that's julius caesar yeah he's going to bring his legions into rome at a certain point mm-hmm. but crassus refuses to do that <laughs> obviously the slaves have grown in power and we see them riding through the city and they're taking wealth and they are laughing and they're pulling owners behind them horses by ropes and this is all really true spartacus really from that 70 people that broke out of the uh, in the kitchen and broke out of the gladiator school, he raised an army that was up to 70,000 slaves. Wow. And again, we don't know much about him, right. but this he really was recruiting. He really was br- bringing these people together, men, women, children, all this huge mass of people moving through Italy. Yeah. But we are right now back in that gladiator arena and Spartacus rides in on a horse um, and he's very quiet and he goes to his old quarters, which are wrecked. And he looks at the cage where he was kept And we hear the love theme. The lighting is absolutely gorgeous. The DP on this is a guy named Russell Meddy. Okay. Classic Hollywood DP. He won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography for this film. Oh. He and Kubrick did not get along. Kubrick continually told him what to do. Uh, He got really, really mad. And Kubrick basically said... You're going to just run the camera. I'm doing all the lighting. Wow. Kubrick picked all the shots. He controlled all the lighting. And this guy won the Oscar. <laughs> um, Suck it, Stanley. Yeah. Uh, but here, you want to know some of the stuff he shot? Yeah, yeah. He worked for Orson Welles. He shot The Stranger and Touch of Evil. Nice. He also shot Bringing Up Baby. Like, he's a great cinematographer. Certainly. Yeah. And now we hear the sound of people arguing and it grows louder and we go back up to the arena and there are two patricians who are being made to fight each other while the gladiators laugh. And they're even like driving torches into their backsides to get them to fight each other. Noble Romans fighting each other like animals. Your new masters betting to see who'll die first. (laughs) Drop your swords. 
And now the guys are kind of mad. They're like, I want to see blood. I made myself a promise, Grixis. I swore that if I ever got out of this place, I'd die before I'd watch two men fight to the death again. This is why you withhold his lines. Mm -hmm. Because now when he speaks, this is the first time we're hearing... Right, like almost full sentences from him. Right, you know. Once again, like with Gibson and Braveheart, it isn't until Mara dies. Yeah, and then he has that moment where he speaks about what he wants to do and what he wants the movement to symbolize. This is his moment, and the way Kubrick shoots it from below. Yeah, uh, Kirk Douglas walks into the frame between these two guys to separate them and speak to everybody, but it's from below because he's supposed to be uh, assuming this mantle of uh, nobility and leadership of this uh, movement. So it's great. And this is when he says, What are we becoming, Romans? Have we learned nothing? What's happening to us? We look for wine when we should be hunting bread. When you've got wine, you don't need bread. We can't just be a gang of drunken raiders. What else can we be? Gladiators. An army of gladiators. There's never been an army like that. One gladiator's worth any two Roman soldiers that ever lived. And someone says, we beat the Roman guards here, but a Roman army is a different thing. They fight different than we do. And Spartacus says, we can beat anything they send against us if we really want to. It takes a big army for that, Spartacus. We'll have a big army. Once we're on the march, we'll free every slave in every town and village. Can anybody get a bigger army than that? And now we get to, well, what are we going to do? There's only one way to get out of this country. The sea. And they talk about the Cilician pirates that are at war with Rome, right. and we're going to make a deal with them, and they're going to take us all away. And someone says that he was a galley slave, and yeah, you give them enough money, and they will take you away. Yeah. And this is the plan. It's not actually really clear what Spartacus's plan was. Mm -hmm. This might have been part of a plan, mm -hmm. but it's not as clear. We, we don't know enough about him right. to know exactly what he was trying to do. Right. We're in this wide landscape shot. There's fire way in the background. It's an amazing shot. Yeah. And we see the guys riding over the hills, and the horses ride towards camera with Spartacus in the lead. And now we got some more slaves to come and join them. Yeah. And there, who do we see but Verinia? And Spartacus sees her, and we hear the love theme. And others ride off, and Spartacus rides slowly to her. The eye light in there, the, the lighting is just gorgeous. And he gets off his horse and steps into a two shot and says her name. Verenia. I thought I'd never see you again. And both of them are just near tears in yeah. this moment. I think the chemistry between them is great. It's potent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last time I saw you, you. You. Waiting in the arena. And she cries and they kneel down in front of each other. And this is so romantic. Yeah. And this is why I go like, we've never seen Kubrick film anything like this. Yeah. There's nothing like this. And he does it so well. Yeah. And he says, I thought you were in Rome. And he touches her face and asks how she's escaped. And she says, I jumped out of the cart and Matthias was so fat. And she can't, she can't quite say it. And Kirk starts laughing and then she laughs. Uh, it's just a great, great moment. Yeah. <laughs> I flew out of the cart. <laughs> and Matthias was so fast. He couldn't catch me. He couldn't catch up with me. And he's, Kirk says, nobody can sell you again. Nobody can sell you or give you away or make you stay with anyone. Forbid me ever to leave you. And he sits up and he says, I do forbid you. I forbid you. It's a great scene. 
It's 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 also like a sweet, playful scene too, because they just said, "No one will ever own you. No one will ever." It's them. It's her saying, "I am willing to be yeah. connect tied to you." And bonded to you, yeah. as opposed to being made to be bonded to you. So it's a freedom of choice. It's her first freedom of choice moment in the movie. Well, right? and I, I think, yeah, that's a great point. Her rebellion I, of spoiling the wine is not the same thing. This no. is her freedom of choice. Well, and I think the freedom. fact that their relationship was built without words yes. means that at this moment, they're so deeply connected. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like, there's no insecurity about their relationship. They're like... No, I am a hundred. We are a hundred percent together. That's it. It's organic chemistry. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. great. It's great. Eustonoff <laughs> and Lawton together. <laughs> you and I have a tendency towards corpulence. Corpulence makes a man reasonable, pleasant, and phlegmatic. Have you noticed the nastiest of tyrants are invariably thin? Basically, he's saying, have you noticed that all the jerks are thin people? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just these wonderful wits mm-hmm. and these yes. wonderful, smart people. Yeah. And you could see all the wheels turning and you can see that they see each other's wheels turning. Yeah. It's just so fun to watch. And physically, it's shot really well. You have Ustinov as more of the hunched, d- submissive position that he's in. And of course, uh, uh, Gracchus is more laid back, so he's in the more dominant position. Yeah. Just really well shot. And and they're talking about basically Yusinov's in a bad situation because yeah, yeah. he's lost all his slaves, uh, and he's kind of talking about their old relationship. And we notice that all the servers and people working in Lawton's house are women. And I love Lawton's line here. He says, "In spite of your vices, you are the most generous Roman of our time." Vices. <laughs> And he's like, well, all the ladies. Uh, and and, and Yusinov again pulls back. He's like, oh, perhaps I used the wrong word. No, an eccentricity, a, a foible. I hope I pronounced that word. He's, all of Yusinov's little things are so funny. Right. These are tactics to get him yeah. to feel, you know. And, and Lon says, no, I'm the most virtuous man in Rome. I keep these women out of my respect for Roman morality. That morality that has made Rome strong enough to steal two-thirds of the world from its rightful owners. <laughs> so he's he's undercutting, and yeah. it's just so fascinating how he, he does it. Yeah. I happen to like women. I have a promiscuous nature, and unlike these aristocrats, I will not take a marriage vow, which I know that by nature will prevent me from keeping you have too great a respect for the purity of womankind. Exactly. That's very virtuous. <laughs> very smart. Yeah. Lawton has one of the best faces ever. Yeah. Just one of the best faces. And but now we get to really the point of the scene, mm-hmm. which is Crassus. Yeah. Is Ustinov is mad at Crassus because he blames him for the the, the situation, revolt. the revolt. Yeah. And now he's penniless. And, of course, Gracchus wants to get back at Crassus. And so they say, well, there was this girl, Verinia, mm-hmm. that was sold to her, to Crassus. And maybe we can do something with her. Lawton says, well, I'll pay you 500 sesterces to get Verinia, which is what we say we're going to do. And why'd you buy a woman you've never even seen? To annoy Crassus, of course, and help you. <laughs> so Charles Lawton was also a prima donna, hated the way that his scenes were being changed. Oh. At one point... He got so angry that he stormed into uh, Kirk Douglas's office and said, I'm going to sue you. Wow. And Kirk Douglas is like, for what? And he stormed out. He never did sue Kirk Douglas. <laughs> we don't really know. He was also hugely competitive with Olivier. Yeah. They did. They yes. had lots of problems. <laughs> it's, 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 listen, and I want to make this very clear. It is phenomenal to believe that about Charles Lawton because- 
he's so damn good. Yeah. But yet, there is this rivalry here. They would never realistically go for the same parts for any number of no, reasons. No, they're totally different. Right? And so, But him to have this competition with Olivier and then bring that to real life in a movie is just brilliant. So how would you, how would you expect him to act? You know? well, well, here's what, one of the things I read, and, and, and I think this sums it up so well. Olivier wanted to be the first actor ever to be a lord. Yeah. Which he got. Wow, yeah. You know, is that that's what he wanted to elevate acting yes. to the highest stratosphere of the aristocracy. Right, right. Lawton described acting as whoring. <laughs> Lawton was a genius. Yeah. So they have such an opposite thing. And if you yeah. watch their performances, like, it's not that they're in different movies, but they're so, Olivia is so Patricia. Two different acting styles. Totally different. Right? Yeah. One, one is earthy and grounded, yeah. and one is above it and, yeah. uh, oh, do you know what I'm saying? And I, and I But they both work. They're both yeah. effective for what they're doing in their characters, and I love it. You know, it just reminds me of, it's, they're not exactly similar, mm. but there's something that reminds me is Lawton and Spencer Tracy. You know, totally. Is that it's that down to earth mm -hmm. sort of just this person's just talking to you. You could see Tracy in a toga doing the exact same thing. <laughs> you could absolutely see him yeah. in this scene with uh, whatever his name is, whatever his name is. Yeah. Um, but I've always loved Lawton. I mean, like, uh, there's so many greats. Witness for the is it witness for the prosecution or something like that? Where he's the lawyer. It's great with uh, Marlena Dietrich. He's yeah. fantastic yeah. Uh, in that film. So yeah, there's so many great performances from him. So we have reached among the most famous deleted scenes in the history of film. So this is a scene that was... Let's take our clothes off and go <laughs> into the bath. Well, do you like oysters? <laughs> or snails? Snails. <laughs> so this scene was cut from the original film yeah. because of censorship, because of the themes that it deals with. Even in the 60s, they they were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we can't do this. And then when they finally said that we're going to put it back in, they had lost the sound. Yes. And so... And Olivia had died. Yes. And so they call up 65-year-old Tony Curtis or 70-year-old yeah. Tony Curtis to re-record his lines. It is kind of... You can hear it. You can hear it. And I remember this. Like, yeah. I remember this was such a big deal. And then they go get someone who they felt knew Olivier and mm -hmm. could really do a good impression of him. And that man is Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. So this is old Tony Curtis, the voices of old Tony Curtis mm -hmm. and Anthony Hopkins. Well, Joan Plowright, who was Anthony, it uh, was, uh, sorry, Richard, uh, sorry, Lawrence Olivier's wife, at the end of his life, she's the one that suggested Hopkins. Oh, really? She said Hopkins, uh, went because him and Olivier knew each other. Uh, and he said, Hopkins could, could always do a great Larry. That's what that's mm. a quote. He could always do a great Larry. That's great. To his face. He would right. even do it to his face. That's great. So it was great to have him come in and do the voice. And it's almost no perfect, yeah. for God's sakes. It's incredible. So we're in the bath. Crassus is there. He calls Antonidas. And he's as Antonidas is washing him, mm. he's asking him questions. Do you steal? No, master. Do you lie? Not if I can avoid it. Have you ever dishonored the gods? No, master. Do you refrain from these vices out of respect for the moral virtues? Yes, master. And now we get to the point of the scene. Do you eat oysters? When I have them, master. Do you eat snails? No, master. I love this line. Do you consider the eating of oysters to be moral and the eating of snails to be immoral? No, master. Of course not. It is all a matter of taste, isn't it? And taste is not the same as appetite, and therefore not a question of morals. And then he calls for his robe. My taste includes 
both snails and oysters. Okay. Yeah. Here's my question about this. Sure, sure. So I learned about this scene when it had been put back in. Yeah, me too. And then I heard, and then I was told what it was about, which is that this is that oysters represents women and their uh, private parts, and snails represent men and their private parts. And this is a question, a conversation about sexuality. Yes. And that what Crassus is saying is that he is bisexual. Yes, he is. If you would just watch this scene... Mm -hmm. Would you have gotten that? I don't know, but it would have felt completely out of place. Yeah. Because as as someone who like, you know, you watch a movie to analyze what the scenes are and why they lead into whatever, this scene leads into nothing. Absolutely nothing. Uh because there is no uh, bisexual relationship that is explored here. There isn't like because Antoninus almost right afterwards escapes. Well, that's well, no, it does lead into something because that's why he escapes, right? Because oh, because he senses that this is he's going. Well, because to... what happens in the next yeah, scene yeah. is they're looking out a- a- at the world, yeah. And Crassus calls to Antoninus, says, "There's something you must see," and he points out the window and he says, "Their boy is Rome, the might, the majesty, the terror of Rome." There is the power that bestrides the known world like a colossus. No man can withstand Rome. No nation can withstand her. How much less a boy. There is only one way to deal with Rome, Antonidas. You must serve her. You must abase yourself before her. You must grovel at her feet. Again, we have a different metaphor for Rome as a woman. Yeah. And then he says, you must love her. Right. So he is saying in this scene that you have to submit to sex with me. Yes. And that and he turns he around. Is Rome. Because yeah. he is Rome. Yeah. And he turns around and Antonidas is gone. Yeah. And so the motivation for putting the scene back in is that it clarifies what this relationship is. Right. Other than because if you don't have that, then Antonidas just is escaping, which makes sense. It's not that it's not so debatable. It's not it's you don't need it. But, but I I don't think certainly eighteen year old Steve watching this movie would never have gone understood the meanings of oysters and snails absolutely and i go you know we talked about this before of like how many people have to get the thing that you're talking about right and my assumption is 30 percent of people would go oh i think oysters means this and snails Mm -hmm. means that Mm -hmm. it 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 is such a weird scene it is and it is creepy right super creepy (laughs) but you gotta ask yourself how many uh issues were they going to tackle in this movie because here they go and this because he's not presented as a guy who is um I don't know how to say I'll say this. Yes, he's rich and he's powerful and whatever, but what he's doing here is he's subtly seducing or trying to seduce Antonius. He's not forcing himself on him. He's just saying to him, this is the situation. I am both and you must serve me. You must love me, right? He does not have to take that tactic. He is a man of immense power in Rome. He can take whatever he wants. But there's an approach he has that's a little more subtle. And I find that to be a fascinating thing in this scene. And so they're tackling this idea of homosexuality or this idea of bisexuality and putting it on the table. And he's saying, I have an appetite for this or for that. And or, and normalizing it. That's right. what he's trying to do is normalize right. it. So here's another. They're tackling homosexuality or bisexuality in a film from 1960 as a normal thing something to be hidden something because to have conversation about but it's still normal and i find that okay incredible i have a lot i have a lot of thoughts about sure, that. sure sure the, the the first one is is that this the statement of 
is liking oysters moral? Right. Or liking snails immoral? It's just a matter of appetite. appetite. It's what you like. Right. And that is a perfectly logical statement that is doing exactly what you're saying mm. of normalizing homosexuality yeah. or, or bisexual. bisexuality. Yeah, yeah. It's saying like, and, and to me, that's how I feel. What does it matter to me what somebody digs? Right. If they like oysters or they like snails, I don't care. Or both. Or yeah. both. That's yeah. totally fine. Yep. But they're putting those words in the mouth of the villain of the film. Uh you know, and so and yeah, and th- and the other thing about it that's interesting is because mm. it really relates to what's going to happen with Rhenia at the end of the film, right? Which is Crassus wants to maintain some kind of idea that he's not a bad guy, right? And so I think he's thinking exactly what you said. I'm not forcing him. Yeah, I am telling him the situation. But he is forcing him. Right. You know, like he he is saying, you can't stand against me. And you must do this. And you must do this. Right. When the scene with Verena later that we'll get into is he wants her to love him. Right. But his only methods of doing that is to force her. Yeah. He wants to create the illusion that there's choice because that feeds his ego. Right. But there is no actual choice. This is a slave. Right. You know, he has no choice. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's a... I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah, it's weird because I, I don't see it the way you see it only because, to me, it's Olivier doing it. So I see Olivier saying it. I don't necessarily see the evil person in the movie Crassus, but your point is well taken. It is the villain saying this. So well, is it being seen as a villain, as, as a as a element of something that is villainous? Is this Kirk Douglas or Dalton Trumbo or Stanley Kubrick's point of view about bisexuality and homosexual, like we talk about with the Gibson and Braveheart? Yeah. Well, I don't know. And And... and and the thing, too, is, you know, because it's, it's these things that we talk about all the time. Mm. I have no problem with someone who's bisexual being a villain. You know what I mean? Right. Like, right Absolutely. You know, it, yeah. That's not a problem. Right. It's, 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 you know, I wonder if they had had this scene in the movie in 1960. Yeah. What would be the reaction of people to seeing it? How would they have felt about it? Right. You know, that's what I, and I really don't know. Yeah. I mean, part of me just goes, it would have gone over their heads and they would be like, what was that thing about oysters? <laughs> Do people actually eat snails? What does that you mean know? at all? You know, yeah. I don't know that anyone would have gotten it. Horses are riding across the plains. Uh, we see a watchtower in the foreground as the camera pulls back and there is Spartacus looking like a general. This shot is amazing. Yeah. Riding along the ridge, walking past the men training with spears. We see him smiling. He, yeah. he sees Verena working with the kids. And he makes a speech. He says, here on Vesuvius, we are safe from attack while we train to be an army. That is genuinely where Spartacus hung out, was yeah. on Vesuvius. Right. And then he looks down and sees that a lot of these new recruits are women. He says, <laughs> too many women. And this old woman comes out and goes, What's wrong with women? Where would you be now, you lout? If some woman hadn't fought all the pains of hell to get you into this accursed world, I can handle a knife in the dark as well as anyone. And she just lays into him. Yeah. It is awesome. And the smile on Kirk Douglas's face is just, I mean, it's funny when you have a face of granite. Yeah. And then you smile. Yeah. It's awesome. You lout! I want to see Spartacus. All right, grandmother, I'm Spartacus. Stay with us. We'll need a million Roman shrouds before we're through. And she gives him a big hug. Yeah. It's great. Once again, here's another issue. The idea of equality of women in society yeah. to be viewed as equal 
thrown right into this yep. moment. I, mean, I just I find this film fascinating on so many levels yeah. because of what it does so effortlessly yeah. with these issues. And then now you see this moment of leadership because he goes down the row and he asks what each of these slaves had done. Right. And then he directs them like this person was the steward of a house. It's like, oh, well, you're going to help with our, our food supply. And this person did this. Oh, well, you're going to help with that. This person was a, a blacksmith or a carpenter. Yeah. And like he takes them and then he gets to Antonius <laughs> In his pretty new Roman cloak. <laughs> what or, work uh, did you do? <laughs> Singer of songs. Singer of songs. <laughs> Singer songs. Uh, but what work did you do? Well, that's my work. I also juggle. I also juggle. <laughs> that's hilarious. And feats of magic. Magic? Maybe he can make the Romans disappear. And he pats him on the shoulder. Um, and now we're with the Roman garrison, and they're all drinking and partying and laughing. And we intercut that with Spartacus and his men training. Yeah. Uh, this perfect juxtaposition of images, so we kind of have a sense where this is going to go. Mm-hmm. Antonidas uh, is training also and is helped up, and we see blacksmithing and baking and weaving and just life around the camp. Um, and later on, Antonidas is putting on a little magic show. Yeah, I don't literally don't know how you do the trick with the egg with a bird inside. But I can't imagine that it was an easy thing to do. Like I think you need to have to be able to make that egg. <laughs> <laughs> and get the birds <laughs> like i don't know how antonitis went to ye, you know local roman latin uh roman magic shop yeah, to pick right. up the right stuff <laughs> but you do get the great bit you know he's making birds appear and varenium makes a bird appear and spartacus goes i haven't had an egg in forever and he goes to crush the egg with his hands and egg yolk perfectly shoots yeah. onto his face and a big laugh and it's great once again humanizing your uh, lead before it becomes too lionized, yeah, which I think is brilliant. Well, and that he li- he's willing to laugh at himself. Yes. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's a great, important. great moment. And then we hear, "Sing us a song, Antonitis," and he never sings. <laughs> he doesn't sing. And he just he speaks the lyrics. Just speaks, which lets me know Tony Curtis cannot sing. I'm assuming. Yeah, but then why don't you just say, "Tell us a poem, Antonitis"? Right, right. And but he says this thing where the refrain is, "I turn home." And everyone is sort of moved by it. Yeah. And there's a montage of seeing the other slaves. Yeah. yeah and and that it really hits them all. Mm-hmm. I don't think it, I think that all the filmmaking is great. Mm-hmm. I don't actually think that Tony Curtis saying this poem is particularly moving. <laughs> I think all the reactions to it are moving. Mm. Uh, but then Kirk says, I was wrong about you, poet. You won't learn to kill your teacher's songs. I came here to fight. Anyone can learn to fight. I joined to fight. There's a time for fighting and there's a time for singing. Now you teach us to sing. Sing Antonis. And walks away. That's great. It's great. Some wisdom. This is a deep dude, this yeah. Spartacus guy. Yeah. Well, they said he was intelligent, which is dangerous for a slave. Yeah. And we hear Antonitis in the background as we have Verinia and Spartacus. And another, every scene, I think every scene with him and Gene Simmons. Is fantastic in this film. Yeah, Every single agreed. one. This is a great scene. And again, I go, you know, as much as I think the firing the woman and seeing her reaction was horrible. Right. Kubrick is a hundred percent right, and that this is this just works so well. Yeah. And here we hear, we kind of hear Spartacus's dreams that he wants to learn. Yep. He wants to understand how the world works. I'm free. What do I know? I don't even know how to read. You know things that can't be taught. I know nothing. Nothing. I want to know. I want to know. Know what? Everything. 
It's great. Why a star falls and a bird doesn't. Where the sun goes at night. Why the moon changes shape. And he looks at a leaf and he says, I want to know where the wind comes from. And then she tells him and she tells him this kind of mythology about where the wind comes from. Mm. And they laugh and they lie down together and they're sort of uh, front to back. So his head is towards her feet and her, her, her head is towards his feet. Uh, it's beautiful, beautiful shot. And then he takes the, I want to know everything about the world mm. and about nature. And the next thing he says is, I want to know all about you. Every line, every curve. I want to know every part of you. And he moves a leaf across her face and she takes the leaf in her mouth. And it is so sexy. Yeah. And that's why this movie is very frank about sex mm -hmm. in its way. Mm -hmm. Like it is such a sensual and erotic moment mm -hmm. as he talks about wanting to know every curve of her and touches her face with this leaf. It's just an absolutely beautiful scene of yeah. love. Yeah. yeah, I think it's great. Uh, we're getting reports on what you know some of the armies were going to have to fight, and then uh, and it's raining outside, and we hear something going on outside, and there's a guy with a litter. Dionysus, get the litter bears out of the rain. Give them food and beds and their freedom. And the guy who had been brought in reacts like, wait, those are my slaves. We'll pay you for them. See, we have no slaves in this camp. And the man comes in, and this is the representative from the pirates. Yes. And he says, how many ships do you want? How many you got? 500 at least. But no deal is too small, I assure you. We'll need them all. All? What is the price? <laughs> and you could see the sort of cash register, you know, the dollar signs hitting his eyes. And we asked, how much is that going to be? And it ends up 50 million sesterces. Again, I don't know what a sesterce, mm -hmm. a, how do you say it? Sesterces. Yeah. Sesterce is. Yeah. Um, but he opens up a chest and there's all sorts of gold and jewels. And the guy's like, oh. And he basically says, I'll give you these on deposit. Uh, when will the ships be ready? Ah, my friend. When will you be ready? How long will it take you to... Uh... Across one-third the length of Italy, fighting a major battle in every town. One year, two years. When Andalusium seven months from now, we'll never be there. Which I think it's just a really important line. Um, but they, they made a deal. Like, he's going to give him this chest, and seven months from now, the ships will all be assembled, and we will have all the rest of the money we need by then. I've heard that you are of noble birth yourself. The son and grandson of slaves. I knew that when I saw you couldn't read. And I like that he says that, yeah. that he says, yeah, I know, I know you're not noble. Mm -hmm. and, and then he says a really interesting things, which is that the Romans can't believe that they're really fighting a slave. Mm -hmm. They have to believe that this guy must be noble. And I think we see this all the time. Oh, yeah. 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 You know, because their brains are structured of like, we are better than them. Right. Therefore, he has to be a noble of noble birth to well, be someone. That's what drives the Shakespeare stuff. Yeah. He didn't really write these plays. There's no way. Yeah. He, blah, blah, blah. You know? By the way, do you remember? Do you remember the actor? Do you recognize the actor who's no. playing? The, it's Herbert Lom, who who in Pink Panther he is the one against the Clouseau all the time. Oh, the, the, his his. Uh, that's funny. His, no. uh, I haven't seen those movies in forever. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, he's also in Dead Zone, playing the doctor who's trying to help Christopher walk and recover. Really? Yeah, he's the German oh. guy who has the visions of his mom in the Holocaust. Good showdown. Yeah, Herbert Lom is great. It's he's always shows up in great stuff. Surely you know you're going to lose, don't you? By the way, this is my favorite interaction of the movie. Okay, how come? Because what he says about the difference between when a free man mm. dies mm -hmm. and a slave dies, right? All men lose when they die. All men die, but a slave and a free man lose different things. 
They both lose life. Free man dies, he loses the pleasure of life. Slave loses pain. And so he has less to lose than the free man, and therefore that's why we will win. And I've always believed that. If you have nothing to lose, you have the advantage no matter what the odds are. You know, and I I just love the interaction. It's 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 a great great line and mm-hmm. a profound one. There, there's a yeah. line that it might just reminded me of as you were saying that is in Frank Miller's uh, Daredevil: Born Again, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite comic book series. Hell yeah! The the big quote from Kingpin is, "For I have shown him that a man without hope is a man without fear." Yeah, yeah, that's a great that that that, that sentiment of like. Well, and it's funny is that so here's a so Sun Tzu, great military philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that sometimes you have to make things so bad for your army, put their backs totally against the wall yeah. so that they will fight with everything they have. <laughs> you know, that Sun Tzu said you should do that on purpose sometimes. Right, right. Um, Just to see what you have. Yeah, it's a great scene. Yep. And the other thing that comes up in the scene is he tells them there's six cohorts from the Roman garrison uh, that are ready to fight you. Spartacus, that pirate was right. The garrison of Rome. They're setting up camp. Strong camp? We'll no stockade. No stockade? Are you sure? I'm very sure, Spartacus. And they say they're having a good time. It's like they're having a picnic. And Spartacus says, well, I think we're going to join that Roman picnic. <laughs> and he sa- and all he's thinking is, that's a lot of armor yeah. and a lot of weapons we can take. And he mounts up and they ride off. And the camera booms up to watch them go. Camera work again is beautiful. Yeah. And we cut to flames because they have taken the camp. Mm-hmm. And uh, Spartacus and his men are riding through the Roman camps. It's a great tracking shot, lots of chaos. He's giving orders and they drag Gre- Glabrus in, who struggles to get to his feet. And it ends up that he was just hiding in his tent. On his belly. On his belly. Playing dead. Now you disappoint me, Marcus Glabrus. Playing dead. You afraid to die? It's easy to die. Haven't you seen enough gladiators in the arena to see how easy it is to die? Of course you have. I think there's something so satisfying about this scene. Oh, yeah. And watching the guy who was just talking while Kirk was fighting to the death, Mm -hmm. like suddenly be brought face to face with, you are just a man. Yeah. You know, because I think he has the attitude that he's a Roman patrician. He's the head of the garrison of Rome, that he can't be hurt. Right. And that gets thrown in his face real, real fast. Yeah. And first, the sec- suggestion is let's have a match bear. Um, and the little guy who who's, we've seen many times is a good character wants to fight him. And Spartacus pulls out the baton, which is the symbol of his command. The symbol of the Senate. All oh, the power of Rome. And he breaks it. And he sticks it in Glabrus's cloak. And he says, take that back to your Senate. Tell them you and that broken stick is all that's left of the garrison of Rome. Tell them we want nothing from Rome. Nothing except our freedom. We're marching south to the sea, and we'll smash every army they send against us. Put them on a horse. And they do, and everyone cheers. There's something a little Braveheartish to me about this scene. Yeah, you know, I think I really think the connections between Ben Hur, as you said, Ben Hur, yeah. Spartacus, Gladiator, and Braveheart yeah. are just really big. Yeah, and Spartacus really did do this. He really did defeat uh, the garris- this garrison of Rome. What they actually did, which is not in the movie, is all the gladiators climbed down a cliff 
in order to attack the garrison from behind. Oh, wow. Yeah, they, they, they climbed down a cliff near Mount Vesuvius to do this. The Roman camp really hadn't put up stockades. Right. You know, he basically violated basic preparation of military tactics. Mm-hmm. He, he really underestimated these guys, and they did just wipe him out, and he really did send the commander of the garrison back to Rome to tell him to stay the hell out of our way. Wow. And we have reached the intermission. So uh, I think we're going to break here. Yep for now and we will come back next week uh to continue our discussion of spartacus as always we would love to hear if you've made it through it this far (laughs) what you think of spartacus um as always you can visit our facebook page do a search for the cinephiles you can subscribe to the show at all the normal places youtube itunes stitcher spotify you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles where you can suggest a film and you can listen to our cinephile shorts You can also visit us at cinephiles.net where you can stream or buy Spartacus along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you want to find me, you can do so on Twitter at SR Morris and on Instagram at SR Morris One. John, how about you? You can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And of course, please uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel, www.youtube.com slash John Roca Says. Go get involved there. Uh, And uh, there's also social media for us, the cinephiles, right? There is. It's uh, Cine underscore Files on Twitter and the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. And I think that's it for this week. We will see you with part two, act two of Spartacus, next time on the Cinephiles. <laughs>